Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, July 28, 843-661937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Um, I'm not the kind of person to spread rumors. I'm not the kind of person. I mean, I, you know, I always say this. I mean, I'll preface all of this. I got my flaws. Don't get me wrong. There are many. Um, there, there are some that I wish I could shake, but I've not been able to. I mean, there, there are a lot of um, imperfections in my life. I've never been gossipy. I've just never, ever had an interest in, I mean, you know, someone to come to, hey, you hear about such and such? Yeah. Why didn't you tell me? Because it's none of my business, man. I mean, it really isn't any of my business. Um, And I don't think this is gossipy, but it's not something I've been given permission to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, My sidekick in radio for the last nearly 12 years, I guess it is 12 years now, uh, the Royal Rev of Radio has not been with us this week because, as many of you know, his mom has dealt with some pretty serious health issues for the last three, four, maybe five months. Um, she passed away yesterday at about 2.45 in the afternoon. Um, she was in her 80s. She had been diagnosed with cancer. I think Rev let us know that when he was back here. Got a call Friday that she'd taken a turn uh, for the worse. And, um, I mean, I never told Rev this, but I imagined – he knew that he was going down to spend his last few days with his mom. Um, the way he characterized it to me was at least the way I understood it to be. But, um, you know, nothing, nothing's forever. And I've dealt with death. You and I were talking yesterday, Josh, a little bit about um, Rev's situation. I didn't see my parents get old. Uh, mm-hmm. Both of my parents died at 63. My sister died at 29 uh, in a pretty condensed period of time, about four years there when all of those nasty things happened in my world. And I'm not. The, the, the best advice giver, but the advice that I know is going to happen, the world's going to keep turning. It doesn't wait on me, doesn't wait on you, doesn't wait on Rev, doesn't wait on, on Josh, doesn't wait on anybody, and you just get up and, and move on and do the best you can, but a part of your life is gone forever. And all you've got are the memories and the reflections and the, and the recollections of um, the relationship you had uh, with that person. And I'm not saying it's been easier to accept death, but as I've gotten older, I, I, I have accepted the inevitability of death and the reality that, you know, we're not going to be here forever. Uh, our earthly existence is limited. Um, some is tragic. 18-year-old dies in a car wreck. 16-year-old gets diagnosed with cancer. Um, and, and it's still sad when someone in their 80s, you know, kind of runs the course of life and, and has a full and, and healthy life. And then they, you know, something happens late in life. But, but it is, it's easier to accept. To me, it is. It's easier. It's hard to get your arms around a 16-year-old being diagnosed with terminal cancer and dying six months later. Or an 18-year-old, um, sweet as can be, you know, young person dying in a car wreck. I mean, th- those are the things that I struggle with enormously. But but death is the end. I mean, it's the end as we know it now, once again, if you believe in uh, in the gospel story of Jesus, if you believe in, in, in eternity, and if you believe in life after, you know, life, life after we leave here, um, then the 79.8 years were afforded here is but a vapor in the wind. It's but a blip on the radar. Eternity awaits. And, um, and anyway, uh, don't want to get too philosophical or theological, but, um, but our good friend and someone that I think you become uh, very friendly with Dave Baker lost his mom yesterday at about two forty-five in the afternoon. There will be an emptiness. There will be a void. There will be sadness that's expected. I think it would be weird not to feel emptiness and not to be sad and not to be, um, but, but there, there's a certain, 
I mean, I, I can only speak from there. There's a certain peace we find in, you know, the, the, the person that you love struggling to make it through this life leaves the struggling side of things to go on to uh, a happier and more content and pain-free existence. So our prayers are certainly with a Rev and his family. Uh, I don't have any idea when the funeral is. I don't have any idea how to notify. And he's not giving me permission to do this. But believe it or not, I've done things without Rev's permission before. <laughs> and, and he knows that because we've had to address some of those things that I've done over the air without his um his permission. You don't know how many times when I when we hang the headsets up to take a break, Rev says, man, I don't know if you can say that, you know, or I, I don't know if you could say it that way, or I, I don't know if you should have done that, or I, let's be careful there. I mean, he's kind of the guardrail, and, and I get a bit rambunctious and, and, I, and have disregard for the orderly way of which things are to be done, and maybe that's what made has made us, you know, kind of an interesting tag team, um, and you know, Josh is on board, and we're certainly excited to have him on board, um, but I think when Josh took the job here, the primary person you spoke with was Dave Baker. I mean, that, that's who you really got to know before you got to know oh, yeah. anybody else. And I'll say this, Josh, uh, pay me very little attention on how to progress uh, in a career. Pay Rev a lot. Rev is an unbelievably professional, proficient, responsible, committed, dedicated, loyal, um, smart, all those things. I mean, I'm none of those. He, he's, he's all of those. So, um, so as you learn this craft, Pay him far more attention uh, than you pay me. But I just imagined our listeners would want to know, because um, I think I've had several ask me, you know, where's Dave been this week? I mean, I think you know some of the story. And uh, and once again, his mom took a turn Friday for the worse. He headed down. Um, I think he told me maybe Sunday that they expected her to die within uh, 24 hours. But those things, you know, that you're, you're at the mercy of, you know, God in heaven and this – um. Uh, this is this earthly existence playing itself out as uh, as we see fit. You want anything, Josh? Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's a tough situation. I and like you're saying, Dave, Dave is the best. I'm surprised this ship is still afloat without him. But uh, you know, I think it was a good call to kind of break the news. So well, we did it whether he know. wanted us to do it or yeah. not. I mean, there's nothing you can't put that genie back in the in the bottle. And once again, I didn't. Intend to do it until you said it's time for the show to start. That's what I kind of determined yeah. on the fly. <laughs> and look, it, it's sad. I mean, it is sad, but but it's just, you know, it, it's what we're all going to deal with at yeah. some point in time. I mean, you're going to deal with it. I'm going to deal with it. I hope the people that I love most live until their 80s or 90s. But I hope and pray that that is the case. But I've had the misfortune of, um, of watching my 29-year-old sister pass away. And that's when it grabs your just your gut. I mean, that's when you just like, wow. I mean, you know, I, I believe in God. I trust in God. Uh, I believe in the Old and New Testament. But this doesn't make any sense. I mean, this just doesn't add up. I mean, why Why here? Why now? Why me? Why my, why my sister? And, and, and I still go back to the, um, the line I use a lot in Rudy. You know, there's a God in heaven and I ain't him. Sometimes that's got to suffice. Sometime, sometimes uh, that has to be good enough and all we can hang our hats on but but in, 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 you know, and we'll move on and do our thing here. But but let's just keep Rev in our, in our prayers and our thoughts as he deals yeah. with the death of um, of his mother. And I've got no idea when he's back. I have no idea, you know, where she'll be buried, when the funeral will be. I would imagine uh, that that we'll speak today about some of those. But I've just checked on him every day, 
and let him know if there's anything I can do. Um, I mean, I know the answer to that. No, there's nothing you can do. But but you got to just let somebody, the people you care about, let them know. The people you love, let them know. The, the people you have concerns about, let them know. Don't assume they know these things. I mean, they, I'll do this. There's somebody in your world today that you know is struggling. I mean, there's somebody in your world, 90% of you out there listening to my voice, have somebody in your life right now, may, may be very intimate, may not so intimate, but you know they're struggling. Let them know that you care. I mean, I, I'm not saying metal. I'm not saying, you know, poke around. I'm not saying being being nosy, but but just, you know, genuinely, people that you genuinely care about and, con- and are concerned with, they need to know. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a bit uplifting. I mean, it can be misinterpreted as, um, he's trying to tend to my business. You know, he's trying to, nah, I mean, you, you know the friends that you have that sort of bond with that they would never interpret your actions as, you know, being nosy or trying to figure out exactly what is, what, what is going on. Um, eight, four, three. Anyway, let's, let's move on and do our thing. A job to be done. Um, and we'll get back to business as usual because that's what we got to do. I mean, that's what we're called to do. That's what we're led to do. That's what we, uh, what we must do. The world, the show must go on. The show must go on. The world marches, marches forward. I want to do this, Josh, if you don't mind. I want to start the yeah. show, um, with a uh, k- kind of a montage because I want to frame this. I mean, I actually, I think we did a good enough job yesterday of explaining to our listeners. Um, I think somebody gave us a compliment toward the end of the show. Johnny, if I'm not mistaken, said thank you for really explaining that thing in a way that um that we can understand it. I thought about it this morning. Um, self-government is hard. It's unbelievably complicated. Um, it's impossible when truth means zero. When truth means nothing, self-government epically fails. And I'm not saying that's where we are. I'm not saying um, that's where we're headed. But I was thinking about riding over here this morning. I would argue that 80% of Americans, uh, that may be high. Nah, that's probably pretty close. 80% of Americans have never heard of Burisma. Probably I not. Mean, if, if you've not watched Fox News and if you've not listened to talk radio, you don't know the word Burisma. You may think it's an English rock band or, <laughs> or a Polish folk group. I mean, you, you wouldn't have any Burisma. I don't have any idea uh, what that is. And and that's I mean that once again that that is an unserious public, but it's a media that that is decide to just be fundamentally dishonest. I mean it's past liberal, it's pro it's past propaganda. I mean you know being a liberal activist and being a propagandist is one thing, being being someone who has a responsibility to cover the news of politics and just fundamentally dishonest. I mean it, it leaves a vacuum that I'm not sure how you feel. I mean, once again, wink and nod, liberal media, uh, biased media. Uh, okay, fair enough. I mean, that, I, I wish it weren't the case. I mean, I wish the media were not as monolithic. I wish, you know, so some of the administrative agencies in our government were not monolithic. And if you don't believe they're monolithic, look at the vote tallies in the collar counties of Washington. I mean, it, Trump gets beat 90 to 10 in Washington, D.C. He gets beat, you know, 75 to 25, 80 to 20. In some of these outlying counties, Trump probably loses with people who work for the federal government. I said federal government. Didn't say state. Didn't say local. That's a different animal. I mean, those are genuinely, I think, by and large, people dedicated to serve. Uh, I mean, they want to get paid, and some get paid well, but they should get paid well. 
but, but the federal government's a different animal. I mean, you're almost forced, as someone who works in administrative agencies of government, you're almost forced at the federal level to choose sides. I mean, you really and truly are. It's, politics consumes that much of the, um, of the discourse, of the activities, and if you're working at the DOJ, you've almost got to be somewhat of a political ideologue. I mean, I talked earlier this week, and I think we can prove this. Um, the radicalization of DOJ was Barack Obama's appointees. I mean, he and Eric Holder fundamentally realigned DOJ. I mean, it is a politically active group of individuals with the power to indict, with the unbelievable power to, uh, you know, c- kind of go into your world, whatever, whatever they believe is fair game, Josh, can become fair game. And that's scary. I mean, the, the scary part of this is not that Hunter Biden may or may not get a lenient sentence. I mean, I always suspected he would. Mm-hmm. The scary part of this is the DOJ has not taken an adversarial position to the Biden legal team. I thought about a good analogy. Andy McCarthy actually wrote in the National Review. And McCarthy's been, I mean, to me, fair-minded. I mean, he's, he's, he's a Republican. He would be um, right of center. But I don't think he's a hack by any stretch. I don't think he's uh, fundamentally dishonest. Uh, he, I've read a lot of things that McCarthy's written over the years that have made me angry. And I'm going like, you're one of us. And I think he said, no, I'm, I'm not one of you. I'm an attorney who is allowed to give political opinions based on my interpretation of what the law says. And I understand the law because I'm a former uh, U.S. district attorney. I'm a, you know, c- kind of a, uh, I'm a well-read, scholarly, well-educated, um, you know, lawyer. And, and my opinion should matter a bit more, more than yours. M- McCarthy makes an interesting point yesterday. And, and, I, and I think it's worth reiterating or repeating. McCarthy says that the problem with this plea, I mean, there are a lot of problems with it. We'll get into that. But, but the, the, the main problem with this plea is there's not adversarial relations. I mean, it isn't one side trying to get the best deal and the other side looking after uh, the public interest. And McCarthy compares it to some of the Democrat governments in blue cities dealing with public sector unions. I mean, they're in it together. There is no adversarial relationship between, I mean, they're negotiating a deal. Same thing we're doing here. A plea is a deal. That's why it's called a plea bargain. I mean, we're bargaining. You know, you get this and I get this. You get a little immunity and I get a guilty plea. I mean, it's kind of a negotiation. That's why most trials don't go to court. But in the the negotiation between labor unions, public sector labor unions, and some of these big blue American cities, you're dealing with Democrats who, you know, kind of a wink and a nod. We'll get you all this money, but you got to return that money in, in the form of contributions and make sure your membership votes for me, you know, 75, 80, 85%. Uh, so, so McCarthy makes the comparison of the negotiations and the deals and contracts made by Democrat politicians in blue American cities and public sector labor unions in blue American cities. There's no adversary there. But they're, 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 they're not adverse to one another. It's like, um, wink, Josh. Yeah, okay. Uh, Josh, what, what do y'all need? Uh, you, you need another 20% for health care? You know, another three personal days off? You know, a little more of this, retiring at a little bit earlier age? You know, it's going to cost us a lot of money. But we think we can find that money, Josh. But what I probably need is some sort of um, commitment from you that, you know, you'll return that in the form of a political action committee donation to my campaign. I mean, it, it, there is no that there is no yin and yang. There is no back and forth. There is no one side versus uh, the other side. And McCarthy says 
the, the, the fundamental problem with this plea deal, there was never an adversary relationship. I mean, it was, it was basically the DOJ and Hunter Biden's legal team um, trying to hide blanket immunity in a plea bargain that, that included some of this diversion um, tactic. I, I want to go into that because McCarthy right. wrote an interesting article. I think we did a good job of explaining yesterday what caught the judge's attention. I'm convinced. I mean, you know, I get some of our callers disagree with me here. I'm convinced the judge isn't on the tape. I mean, I just don't buy that. But I understand some of the arguments made yesterday, and I can play it out. You know, Biden's beatable by Trump, so let's get him out of the, you know, out of the way, off the playing field. I don't buy that. I mean, I just think this judge, for once in a long time, somebody with power, influence, and authority made a moral and ethical decision when everybody around them are making more immoral and unethical decisions, and I think she's to be congratulated. And I have no idea. I mean, is this one uh, moment in time? Is this something that could lead to a couple of others drumming up the courage to do what they need to do in regards to law and order? I'm not talking about political spin. I mean, this is law and order. I mean, this is um, endorsing an indictment or not. Excuse me, endorsing a plea deal or not. There is no indictment. I mean, that, that's the, I mean, the bizarre nature of this. And McCarthy agrees with me. A, a lot of constitutionals. The New York Times finally said yesterday that, and I quote, it's harder to believe the previous narrative. I mean, that's about as far as the Times is going. It's harder to believe the previous narrative. Now, that's, that's the time. I mean, that, that's about what you're going to get out of the New York Times. I mean, they didn't mention Burisma. They didn't mention pay to play. They didn't mention quid pro quo. But they did say, and I read the Times every day, they did say harder to believe the previous narrative. Now, I don't know. Is that the um, is that the first crank of the handle to open the dam or open the floodgates? I don't have any idea. But yesterday, for the first time, that, that and I, once again, I read it every day. It's harder to believe the previous narrative. Speaking of the previous narrative, I want to come back and I'll play kind of a montage here of what Joe Biden claimed and has claimed People who speak on his behalf claim and have claimed juxtaposed to what we suspect reality may really be. Take a break. Back in a few. Thanks. Have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. Biden met with at least 14 of Hunter's business associates. And the president doesn't have uh, dealings with his family members about business. I, I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. He was deeply involved in Hunter Biden's business dealings. There was a broad range of Russian disinformation. But I never discussed a single thing with my son about anything having to do with Ukraine. Then Vice President Joe Biden joined dozens of his son's business meetings by speakerphone. I'm not sure that's a conflict of interest. I don't discuss business with my son. He was a large part of Hunter's business dealings, that he was an equity partner. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I've never discussed my business or their business, my sons or daughters, and I've never discussed them. I am sitting here with my father. We would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. This is a president that respects the rule of law. There's not one single bit of evidence. They uncovered evidence the president's son pressured a potential Chinese business partner to move ahead with the deal by invoking his father. Not one little tiny bit. The only thing he had to offer was access to his father. I'm just not going to speak to it from here. There is zero, 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 zero evidence. He kicked back up to 
of his earnings to his dad. The president had, was never in business with his son. You can bet that coming in the future, they'll be parsing the meaning of in business. I want to say this, you know, there, there is always going to be, always has been, always will be political debate. I mean, it's, it's inevitable. It's not, there's no way around that. When, when Jeff calls into this show and expresses his opinion, Jeff's not lying. Right. I mean, I think he's wrong, but he thinks I'm wrong. I mean, there's a genuine belief that there's something you sink your anchor in. Um, I met with someone yesterday with Tim Scott's campaign and, and we were talking about the campaign and DeSantis and not, you know, not catching on and Tim doing a little better than people thought he would do. And the fact that it's still Trump's party and nobody knows what to do about, you know, the stranglehold he's got on that party. And Vivek Ramaswamy has been, you know, a very engaging and charismatic personality in the campaign no, nobody's being fundamentally dishonest. I mean, they're, 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 nobody out there's lying. That they're 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 standing on some of the principles they believe in. They're arguing the merits of this ideology or that ideology or another ideology. But but we've you know Biden's gotten himself at a place now, and this this stops being politics and it's about the truth. And I and I wrote down this morning. You know, if the truth means zero, we're done. I mean, I understand we water down the truth in politics. I get that. I understand that it's hard to discern what true is and what or what 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 the truth is and what's not. When, when you get into the body politic, I mean, it gets squishy is the word that I like to use a lot. I mean, you know, Josh has a fundamental belief in certain things. I have a fundamental belief in certain things. I don't think Josh is a liar because he doesn't believe in the same things I believe in. I don't think Jeff's a liar because he doesn't believe in the same things that I, that I believe in. There's, there's the, the events and experiences that bring you to where you are or who you are. I mean, they're what you're about. They, they, they are the, the things that you believe in. And, and I would never accuse a liberal of being, you know, a liar. They're liberal. I think they're wrong. They, they scare the daylights out of me and the bejesus out of me if they gain too much control over our government. But, but I think, Many of those people actually believe that. They believe that we are a better nation if government garners more control, more influence, uh, you know, some of the socioeconomic conditions, uh, some of the disparities in society. You know, we need to use government to level the playing field. I mean, that's not a lie. I mean, if you believe it, but, but, but we're, you know, this Biden situation has gotten to a point now, it's somebody's lying. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not about a difference of opinion. I mean, th this is not about, um, you know, that the government should do this or the government should not do that. You know, we should spend, you know, a trillion dollars on this or a billion dollars on this. I mean, those are disagreements. I mean, those are differences of opinion. But this is not a difference of opinion. I mean, th this is not a, you know, some abstract political argument where you s it's real hard to, you kind of scratch, it's so much in the abstract. It's so, it's so ambiguous. It's hard to understand exactly which side is up. No, I mean, somebody's lying. And, and Tony Bobulinski and Devin Archer and two wireless whistleblowers and an FBI informant, the confidential human source and a bank records and shale companies and wire transfers. I mean, all of that is on one side and on this side is Joe Biden. Somebody's lying.
either either Archer and Bobolinsky and the FBI informant, the confidential human sources, and the two IRS whistleblowers, either every one of those are in cahoots and they're lying to bring down the president, or he's just been dishonest from the get-go. And I think we're beginning to see how dishonest and corrupt Joe Biden is. I think that's what I think we're at the precipice. Now, now we can go down this rabbit hole or that rabbit hole about why, when, where, now. But I think when you stop there, when you when you when you close the door on the rabbit hole, and you stop thinking about Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris and Susan Rice and uh, all these other things that we like to play out in our heads. I mean, is this the time that the New York Times turns on Biden? Is it okay now to roll on Biden? Um, you know that that's I don't I don't know the truth there. I mean, I, I have no idea. Everything that side would be my opinion. It's my opinion that the Democrats are deciding that Biden may be vulnerable and they've got to do something about it. Right. He's in cognitive decline. He, he's obviously um, got a lot of explaining to do. Maybe he can explain it. Maybe not. Uh, it's interesting. No Democrat is defended. I mean, they'll say it's a witch hunt. It's a travesty. It's uh, you know how those Republicans are. And it's all the what about Elizabeth Trump. But, but you know, this side of the rabbit hole, Forget Gavin Newsom. Forget some of the this side of the rabbit hole. Somebody's just being dishonest. I mean, somebody is a liar. Either Bob Alinsky's a liar or Biden is. Archer's mm-hmm. a liar or Joe Biden is. The IRS whistleblowers are liars or Biden is. Because everybody on this side says it's pretty obvious to them that this investigation was going to lead to Joe Biden, and that's why it was stopped. I mean, there, there's just so much corroborating circumstantial information that leads any reasonable person. Now, now, once again, you can spin the debate. I mean, if you're a, a Democrat operative and you're paid a lot of money to fend off the Republicans or fend off the news media, but but that doesn't mean you're, you're telling the truth. I mean, you're, you're being paid to lie is what basically it means. You know, the Democrats give some of these consulting firms, and the Republicans do the same. I mean, they'll give some of these consulting firms enormous amounts of money to, to intentionally lie to the American public. But, but we're at the, I mean, to me, we're at the beginning of um, what must take place to find out whether or not the sitting president of the United States was bribed. And I think fundamentally, um, that's the question we're going to answer. And I want to go to this. We, we, I think we did a good job yesterday of explaining the judge in Wilmington, Delaware, why she did um, what she did. Now, now, Andy McCarthy says the one question that he's gotten asked more than any is um, now that the plea bargain has been disposed of, do we go to trial? And McCarthy's response is, on what? I mean, what? Re- I mean that should be a dumb question. And the real answer should be, yeah, of course. But there's, there, there's no indictment. I mean, there's never been an indictment against Hunter Biden. Mm-hmm. We've got a plea bargain, um, but, but the Justice Department has never filed an indictment against Hunter Biden. I think that's what really got the attention of the judge. I mean, obviously, there's this diversion language. Um, and, and and when you think about um, what an indictment does, I mean, it, it describes in specificity and detail um, what criminal charges Hunter Biden's pleading guilty to and what immunity is, re- is he receiving in in return, the immunity has always been the key. And that's always been what I've been um, suspicious of, not because I'm a lawyer, but because I host a four-hour radio show every day and I try to read from, from sources and, and 
you know, relevant figures that I think know what they're talking about. But but it's the reason I mean, the, the the immunity term is the reason that defendants plead a case, uh, you know, rather than rolling the dice and going to the courtroom and, and crossing your fingers and hoping things work out. I mean, that, that's the reason you plead. It spells out what the government is giving you and what they're keeping in return. I mean, it's that that's the essence of a of a plea bargain. Um, but in this particular situation, the Justice Department intentionally, I mean, they're not this stupid. I mean, they're not just incompetent. They intentionally hid the immunity term, um, which would basically keep Hunter Biden from ever being prosecuted um, for another crime in this diversion agreement. And um, and the diversion agreement related to gun crime. Remember the gun offense, two two misdemeanor gun charge. Excuse me, two misdemeanor tax charges and one felony um, gun charge. But but in this particular situation, and I mean this is what two lawyers told me yesterday. This is what they think got the judge's attention. The diversion agreement is separate from the plea deal. It, okay. It's it's almost like the forward uh, to the book. It's not in the book. It's somebody talking about the book. So the, the diversion agreement in, in this particular case is separate of the plea deal. The judge asked the Justice Department, have you ever agreed to a diversion agreement that was separate from the plea deal? The lawyer for the Justice Department said, you know, we, we don't have a precedent here. So you, in, in theory, you don't have a, an adversarial relationship. If, if prosecutors... And I'm talking about the DOJ in this case. If they had fully described the charges that appear to be supported by evidence, remember we talked about Bobolinsky, we talked about Devin Archer is appearing this coming week in a transcribed interview. We're talking about bank records. We're talking about all these other sorts of things that uh, the Biden still deny and will not answer questions about. Um, so if the prosecutors, as part of the immunity, had to explain. You know, because we're we're talking about NARA. Remember the um the the the, the agent registering act mm-hmm. that it looks like we know Manafort violated. Manafort got in big trouble when he worked for Trump. Well, you know, it's pretty obvious that Hunter Biden was acting as a foreign agent. Didn't disclose that he was acting as a foreign agent. And I mean, we know why he didn't do it because if he if he registers as a foreign agent, somebody wanted to know for who. I mean, what, what what are you doing? You know, who is this about? What I mean, if people are paying you a lot of money to be a foreign agent. What benefit do you bring to the table? Well, my dad's the president. My dad was the vice president. You can't say that. I mean, but but right. anyway, um, if the prosecution, and I'm talking about DOJ, the Hunter Biden legal team did everything they were supposed to do. Now, now John Decker said bad lawyering. I don't buy that. I think the Hunter Biden legal team was brilliant in coercing the Justice Department into signing on to a a non-adversarial agreement. It was a con- it was not a compromise. It was a rubber stamp of the Justice Department. The judge didn't go along with it. So the Justice Department said, hey, man, you know, we're, we, we don't – Merrick Garland was appointed by Joe Biden. Merrick Garland was scolded by the Republicans. He's probably got a big burn in his saddle. Um, so we're not going to fully describe the charges nah, that, that appear to be supported by the evidence that is already known. Bob Alinsky, Devin Archer, Bank Records, Comer – um, RS whistleblowers. And then we got to take a break here, Josh. Well, let's do that. Let's take a break. Cause I don't want to um, get too far behind here, but, but I, I want you to understand that the, the diversion agreement was separate of the plea deal. That was unusual. 
I think that got the judge's attention. And then the judge said, okay, what is he immune from? And the Biden legal team argued that they were immune from any eventual charge. That's when the DOJ had to say no because of the DO. Anyway, let's stay there. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937. Let's, let's go back to this real quick. Uh, I don't know how many long people want to keep talking about this, but to me it's the most important. I mean, you got a DOJ that's corrupt. I mean, it's not an interpretation of statute. It's not, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're making a deal here, not over. I mean, I get all that. I mean, the, the, the art of politics is very inexact. I mean, right. The, the frustration people have with politics is two plus two don't always equal four. I mean, if, if you ask people fundamentally, what do you don't like or what do you not like about politics? I just don't like the, the inexactness of it. I, I don't like the who's, you know, I don't know who's telling the truth. Well, I mean, very often nobody's intentionally lying that there's a, a difference of belief. There's a difference of ideology. There's a difference of a perspective. That's not the case here. Please understand. I mean, this is not typical politics. I mean, this is an opportunity, excuse me, this is a, 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 a highly prestigious agency of our government intentionally misleading or trying to mislead a judge, hence the American people. I mean, that's what we've got here. That This is not politics. I mean, this is dishonesty. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a point in time when even the most accepting of political nonsense becomes like, whoa, dude, I mean, that, that's a bridge too far. We can't, we can't go down there. But, but in essence... The deal broke down when Judge uh, Noreka asked what immunity Hunter's getting for his plea to these minor tax charges and this diversionary agreement. And uh, Hunter's lawyers had to say that the immunity was broad. I mean, it was sweeping, to be honest with you. Um, And the Justice Department's lawyers could not agree with that because if they agree with that, They'd hope that was the case, but if they agree with that, then all the stories they've been telling Weiss about they can't provide information to Congress, they can't provide witnesses to Congress, they can't provide, you know, uh, material to Congress, is because there's an ongoing investigation. You can't have it both ways. Now, now here's the kicker. Hmm. Well, let me think about it. I mean, if, if you're telling Congress that we can't give you this information, we can't provide those witnesses, I can't comment on an ongoing investigation. I mean, they're under oath. Merrick Garland's under oath. Uh, A.G. Garland, tell us about the Hunter Biden situation. I can't. It's an ongoing investigation. But on the other side, they were signing off on a deal that gave Hunter Biden immunity. So, so if he's getting blanket immunity, what, what, why does the investigation matter? We know that the truth is there is no investigation. They've never investigated uh, whether or not Joe Biden and Hunter Biden are in cahoots and whether or not Burisma. I mean, we're going to have to trust, and this is a travesty in all of this, Josh. Historically, we've looked to the DOJ. I mean, we know Congress is politically biased. We know the executive branch. We, we, we argue about conservative judges and liberal judges, but historically, we've looked to the DOJ to kind of call a ball a ball and a strike a strike. Right. And they're not doing that. But because they've told Congress we can't provide that witness because there's an ongoing investigation. I can't answer that question because there's an ongoing investigation. At the same time, they're signing off on a deal that says Hunter Biden gets blanket immunity. How you can't? I mean, that, that's that's they're, they're mutually exclusive of one another. That's that's impossible. I'm not an attorney. 
I mean, I understand an amicus brief. I read a little bit about it, you know, several years ago. I've read a little bit more about it. I mean, I understand some of the adversarial filings. I get all that. I mean, I understand how pleas work. I pled to campaign campaign finance violations. I understand, excuse me, how that works. And there was nothing normal about this. There was nothing ever normal about this. Now, here's the kicker. Um, There's never been an indictment. Go back to what Andy McCarthy said he's been asked over and over and over again. Now that there is no plea to go to trial, and McCarthy's response is, on what? For what? There's never been an indictment. And I can tell you the reason there's never been an indictment, the indictment stops the clock. Um, If there had been an indictment, the statute of limitations would not have lapsed. Some of that would not apply. uh, But there is no indictment. Right. Because the Biden Justice Department, is happy to see the statute of limitations expire on Hunter Biden's offenses because they believe they eventually connect the president. And you you can't go down that road. And it goes back to, you know, just the travesty in all this. I mean, Hunter Biden is is a degenerate. Joe Biden's a crook. But damn it, the DOJ has to call balls, balls, and strike, strikes. Or where do we go from there? I mean, if, if the DOJ is corrupt to the core, like I think it is, how do we self-govern ourselves? That's that's I mean that that's a a conundrum. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. So before we get into it, I want to ask a clarifying question real quick. So we've been talking about this Hunter Biden story unraveling for a couple weeks now, and there's been breaks throughout this week. What uh it seems at first you were talking about um the the DNC kind of throwing Biden to the wind, but the Department of Justice is also going to bat for them. Are they, because at, at, at face value, it would seem these two points contradict each other, but I'm starting to think what you're saying is they are throwing him to the to the wolves, but they're also trying to cover their own butts. Well, I mean, when you say unravel, my point has always been, I mean, I, the, the story never held water. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when when Hunter Biden was found guilt found guilty, especially the felony gun charge, right? I mean that that's you know that's a that's an issue that a lot of Americans have dealt with, and many judges have put people in jail for having a firearm in their possession while under the influence of a narcotic or controlled substance. I mean that that happens a lot in America, and the majority of times people are incarcerated. I mean they are that is a felony. Mm-hmm. I never argued that it was it would unravel. I don't think it ever carried water anyway. I mean, it, you know, once again, the charges and the punishment that was recommended. What, what I always talked about, Josh, is will there be a day that it stops being about Hunter Biden and begins with Joe Biden? I mean, that's I always see. been my most interesting. I mean, a month or so ago, maybe longer than that, Josh, the day that I found out, and, and you, you don't know me this well, but I, I'm a simple man. And I'm a country boy, and I and I have to understand my aptitudinal limitations, and, and I have to accept that. Uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, a man's got to know his limitations. But the day, and there was some day years ago that I read that Joe Biden had bought a house formerly owned by the DuPonts. I, I didn't pay Joe Biden much attention. I mean, I knew who he was. I just got into politics, and uh, you know, Biden buys a house formerly owned by the DuPonts. So I'm thinking to myself, well, he must be John Kerry reincarnate. He must have married a woman with a lot of money, Mm -hmm. but he didn't. 
And, and that's when so, – so that's the day that I – and I'm bad about this, probably uh, worse than I should be. I'm bad about formulating an opinion without, you know, some underpinning for having formulated that opinion. But it's usually right. I mean, my, my gut and instinct normally leads me to a place that, okay, I mean, I, I remember when I read that and I suspected that Hunter Biden was, a, excuse me, Joe Biden was a crook, and I think he is. Now, now, I'm not saying Joe Biden's the only crook in Washington. I mean, I think there are more that are than aren't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's probably some honest brokers in Washington, but, but largely they're there to self-serve themselves. They're not there for we the people. I mean, they, they could care less about we the people. It's about what I can get, what I can uh, earn. How, how, how can I take care of my family with this political position that we refer to as public service? But, but the day that, and I think we're there. I mean, I think yesterday was the day, the day before yesterday. The, the day the judge made the ruling was the day that this became far less about Hunter Biden and a lot more about Joe Biden. The White House press corps pressed KJP yesterday into getting Joe Biden to come out and address the public. I mean, they're as liberal as they come. There's not a more liberal group of people in America than the White House press corps. But yesterday, right. but they're feeling embarrassed. But, you know, they're, they're feeling like, wow, man, I mean, we carry the water, and we'll do. I mean, the, the media has shown they will. I mean, if the Biden administration or the Democrats can come up with a coherent counter-narrative, they'll carry the water. I mean, they, they'll feed the masses, and it goes back to what I said this morning. 80% of Americans have never heard the word barisma. They think it's a British rock band. That, that's how unserious the American people are. And that's how on the take the American political media is. But I never worried about Hunter Biden's plea deal unraveling. What what I always wished for was the moment in time that this stopped being about Hunter Biden. He's a degenerate. But but he's not. I never voted for Hunter Biden. I didn't vote against Hunter Biden. You hadn't either. Right. But he's not the president. I mean, he's he's been a privileged person because of his association with prominent politicians. But I think we're at a moment now in time. Now, once again... Here's where I struggle. You ready? We're going to have to trust some Republicans. Ooh. I mean, don't the majority of Trump voters don't really trust the Republicans. We're going to have to trust Jim Comer. We're going to have to trust um, Chairman Smith, Jason Smith. We're going to have to because they're, they're, they're our only hope. DOJ is proven to be untrustworthy. If we're trusting the DOJ to appoint a special counsel, do you believe Merrick Garland is going to appoint a fair-minded special counsel? No. He's going to appoint a hack. Right. The only hope we've got is in Republicans. And the reason Trump is the front-runner in the Republican Party is the majority of Republican voters don't trust the Republican office holders. So, so there's another conundrum. But, but, you know, all we can do today is trust oversight and ways and means to explore every avenue to connect Biden to these transactions, to this money, to this bribery scandal, and hope Kevin McCarthy launches an impeachment inquiry. Because the impeachment inquiry will allow the gathering of a lot of information that, that you couldn't normally get under some of the, 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 the normal order of subcommittees and committees. Let's go to the phone. All right, we got Breeze calling. Breeze, you are on the air. I tell you, you know, I wake up every morning and I'm just frankly amazed that I don't see fireballs coming down from the heavens. But I tell you, um, you know, when you look at the federal government, and then you had really, if you were to look at government in general, I'm talking about from C 
city, all the city, county, state, federal, it's the biggest organized crime syndicate there is. And I tell you, and, and when the FBI goes around wanting to accuse me of being a crook or being a criminal, then I'm sitting there, I've got a crook and a criminal calling me a crook or a criminal. If the IRS calls me a crook or a criminal, I so I'm being called a crook or a criminal by a crook or a criminal. They have lost, you know, there's the, the moral degradation of this entire country. There, there, there used to be a time where somebody committed a crime, they they, they would sit there and say, golly, man, I, you know, you, you at least you should. I, I accept responsibility for it. I did wrong. I blah, 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 blah. Now, I mean, don't accuse me of committing a crime when you're as big a, big, a, as big a criminal or, or, or worse than I am. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they've lost, they don't, like you were saying one time before, they've lost so much credibility, they've lost so much moral high ground to where, I mean, it's just, it's just a sad, sad joke. And I'll tell you what I think right now, kid. I think they've already, I think the end of the story has already been written. The end of the play has already been written by these people, but they will put a soap opera out for everybody to watch on the Facebook or the Instagram page or whatever. But I think the Republicans and the Democrats, I think the whole thing is all for show anyway. I, I, I'm at the point now where I don't, I don't even trust what, you know, I, I don't trust none of it. And, and another question I would wonder though, Ken, how about the state of South Carolina, our politicians, you know, we, I, we got to trust our boys, and I do trust our boys, but I wonder how deep BlackRock, how deep Vanguard, how deep these insidious powers of evil that are led by Satan are in South Carolina alive and well. How about our public schools? Because what are our public schools really doing? That don't please don't tell me it's educating our youth. It's indoctrinating them to be good workers and obedient followers of the state. That's what they're doing, brother. So, I mean, I, I just woke up this morning. And I said, man, I think the only answer, kid, is probably push-ups. <laughs> Thank you, Reese. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. And there's, I mean, you know, we, there are a lot of these debates. I mean, you've got micros, you've got macros, you've got the macro of all macros. I mean, I've said this for six or eight years. I mean, I, you know, nothing is forever. And this is where you get real wild and crazy and some of the kooky conspiracies that I come up with. I mean, I've said forever that America's not eternal. There's nothing wrong with the American government. I mean, the American government is as perfect as any has ever been created. I mean, the foundational principles that we are supposed to ascribe to in our Constitution, in our Bill of Rights, in our amendment, in our, in our Declaration of Independence, I mean, they're as good today as they were when we started. But the people have corrupted the system. It's not the government. The model of government is fine. It's the people that have accepted the responsibilities to, to inhabit those, those positions of power and influence. I love when people, because I'm bad at it, government's broken. Nah, I mean, the Constitution reads today as it did you know, 246 years ago. Um, the Declaration of Independence reads today just like it did when Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. I mean, they're very profound, morally, ethically sound documents. But man enters the equation, and man right. begins putting his selfish interest ahead of we the people. And, and the only way America succeeds in eternity, which it won't because man is imperfect, 
And this doesn't surprise me. It does surprise me how absent the truth is. I mean, that does surprise me. It surprises me how far the media is willing to go. I mean, the New York Times finally says, I mean, yesterday, I mean, imagine everything that we know to be true. Now, now I, we don't know everything to be true, but there are a lot of things. I mean, we know that there are bank records. We know there's a paper trail. We know there are shell accounts. We know there are a lot of things out there that Joe Biden has not spoken to. And if they, and if they weren't true, Biden would address. I mean, Biden would have a podium and a teleprompter and somebody would help him write a speech and he would deny everything. But, but he does this on the run. I don't know anything about my son's business dealings. I mean, we've normalized what the definition of is really is. But, but the macro of all macros, when you really think about the state of America and where we are and where it appears we're headed, what does happen when a nation's government loses the moral authority? I mean, we talk about morality and ethic. We, we talk a lot about that. And that's, that's kind of a, I mean, it's, it's hard to be moral and ethical all the time. It is. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a human being. I mean, I, I run into chances to be sinful, to do things I know, I, and sometimes I do them. Right. I mean, we all do. But, but there has to be some obligation to morality and ethics and virtue when you're allowed to spend $6 trillion a year and govern the most prosperous nation on the planet. I mean, there has to be some consideration given for that responsibility. And I think when, when that consideration becomes so small a percentage of what can I get, how many jobs can I get in my family? How much money can I get from BlackRock? When I leave here, can I get a lobbying job with big pharma or big insurance? I mean, that, that's the notion. That's the mindset. Uh, the, the government, I mean, the government is still confound, uh, confined, you know, by that document. But, but the people have gone there with very different motivations. They're, they're, they're less moral. They're less ethical. They're less believing in the notions of freedom and liberty and independence and all those other things that we romance about. The, the only person that I hear speaking to that in America today is Vivek Ramaswamy. So they, they crave power sure. and influence more well, than they is, care is about. It's very the, rewarding, right. Josh. Uh, we're, we're all, you are, you're younger than I. It would be, I mean, you're probably more, more idealistic than I am. And I would expect that. I was more idealistic at 25. But, but you are a self-preservationist. Mm-hmm. You may not be an extremist in that regard, but you are a self-preservationist. You are more times than not going to do what's in Josh's best interest. But when you accept the responsibility to be an elected official, you have to balance that with, with what it means to be a congress member or a senator or a, or a mayor or a governor or a lieutenant governor for that matter. And we've got so little of that balance. To Breeze's point, it's become all about power, all about influence, all about all about control. I mean, the Constitution doesn't say that. The Declaration of Independence doesn't say that. But, but the people who got to government and stayed forever, that they saw what they could get out of it and what their friends and family could get out of it. And it became a trough. And people feed at the trough. And, 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 you know, I've said this before. Politicians are like everybody, just more so. I mean, kind of stew on that for a second. I think you'll sense what I'm trying to say. I mean, we're all self-preservationists. Politicians are probably a little more inclined to be self-preservationist. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason they're able to stand in front of a thousand people, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, and say, "Listen to me, vote for me, and I'll make your life better." I mean, that ain't real humble. I mean, that, that there's got to be some bent gene, is what I like to refer to it as. Um, I would always tell my wife, you know, I have a big ego. She said, "You stood in front of two thousand people and said, 
if you'll listen to me and vote for me, your lives will be better. Pretty egotistical. It's pretty arrogant. I mean, <laughs> I accept that, and you've got to be on guard about that. But, but our, our government works when it's moral and ethical and virtuous. But, but I think the founders knew that eventually someone would show up that had their interest and their interest, I mean, we, we all have our interest. I'm not saying a Congress member shouldn't have their interest. Of course they should. But there's got to be some counterbalance. There's got to be some understanding. This ain't about me. I mean, this is about, you know, the, the country that I love, the country that is so provided for me. Am I doing right by the 330 million people to call themselves Americans? No, you're not. I mean, there's no way a member of Congress could look the American people in the eyes and say, we're doing right by you. Right. I mean, there's no way. I mean, that is $330 million, uh, trillion, excuse me, $33 trillion in debt. Um, I mean, we got craziness going around the world that we're a part of. I don't know if you saw the interview the other day with uh, Sean Hannity and RFK Jr. Uh, RFK Jr., I mean, uh, confronted Hannity because Hannity's more of a, um, I mean, he believes in the mission in Ukraine. I mean, he thinks we're doing what we need to do. Um, RFK doesn't. I don't. I mean, I simply do not. Um, I think you saw the... Um, the Democrat, the 90-year-old Democrat senator from California yesterday get confused about, you know, voting. She was asked to vote. Uh, the senator from California, well, it's, it's I or nay. It's yes or no. Um, and she started reading the, basically the narrative of the bill. I mean, she had no clue whatsoever. And I think one of her um, one of her, her fellow members leaned over and said, just say I. Well, I mean, they're, they're sending money to Ukraine. I think it was an additional... Uh, $23 billion to Good Ukraine. Lord. Well, I was thinking about it. So a 90-year-old, at least she's not sending some American kid. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it could be worse. She could not know what she's voting on, but be voting to send mine or your child to Ukraine to get blown up in the name of what? NATO, some transnational organization? She doesn't care because the, the, the military-industrial complex and the defense contract industry and lobbyists are probably what keeps her fed. I mean, they keep her in business. Uh, I don't know how many, I mean, I, I'll make a speculation. I have no idea how many family members Diane Feinstein has that are working in some sector of the economy where she's ingratiated herself to some lobbyist, consultant, CEO of a, of a major American corporation. But, but, you know, our form of government is fine. It's the SOBs that inhabit the halls of Congress that are our major problem. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll come back on the other side. Got a call. We'll do that. Got honor of vet. Um, I don't think Jordan will be here today. I've not heard from Lower Rickenball. We'll see how that goes at our delegation hour. Our delegation hour in, uh, at 8 o'clock. Back in just a couple of minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. We have Charles calling from Lamar. Charles, you're on the line. Good morning. Actually, Charles from Lake City this morning because that's where I happen to be. Um. I was on a call yesterday, and uh, you were talking about the ages of uh, the politicians. And then uh, you, one of the ones I was going to mention was one that you just mentioned, a 90-year-old woman who doesn't even know she's in the Senate. Um, and we, we worry about uh, the president being 81 years old. We worry about the minority leader being 81 years old. The majority leader is 72, which to me is kind of young, but anyway, still it's uh, it, it's 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 old. The former speaker of the house is 83, 
and the people running the world, Klaus Schwab is 85 and George Soros is 92. But but don't forget the other side of the equation. Grassley will be 90 next month, and he just got reelected last year. So that's what we're dealing with up there. These people get up there and they stay, and and uh, uh, they enrich themselves and go up there and and make millions of dollars. When Lyndon Johnson was elected to Congress, he didn't even own his own house. He he rented a house. And when he died, he was worth $40 million. And when his wife died, she was the largest single shareholder in UPS. How does stuff like that happen? How how do things like that happen and we allow it to happen? Anyway, y'all have a great weekend. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate the call. 843 Six six one zero nine three seven. Okay, let's play a little chess. You ready? The reason that Feinstein is still on judiciary is if Feinstein is taken off judiciary, members of the Senate, the entire body, will choose who takes her place. It's determined. In other words, members of Senate committees are determined by the full vote of the Senate, and it would need a 60-vote threshold. So, if Feinstein's taken off judiciary, I mean, she's she's mentally incapable. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's worse than McConnell or Biden. I mean, she really and truly has no clue. I mean, I I'm, I think Biden gets on these medical cycles where you know they jack him up and he's good. Uh, maybe it's Celsius, maybe he's fast twitch. I don't <laughs> I don't have any idea what they juice him up with. But but at times he's a little more coherent than others. Feinstein has no moments of coherence. I mean, she honestly and truly, Charles is right. She doesn't know she's in the world. But she's a member of judiciary, and if if the if the majority leader Schumer were to try and replace Feinstein, it would go before the full Senate, and you need sixty votes to put somebody on the committee. And I don't think the Republicans would go along with that. So they'd be one short. They wouldn't have a majority on the Judiciary Committee, and they couldn't. Um, some of these radical nominees that Democrats are putting up to be judges. That, that's kind of what this boils down to. So they need Feinstein to keep the majority so they can put forth these radical nominees, these judicial nominees that, um, that, that you know, can't ad- advance w- without, um, without all the Democrats voting, voting for them. Um, and, and I would imagine, I mean, I'm talking about court of appeal, any federal court. I mean, it's a big deal. So, so when you see Feinstein wheeled in, basically comatose. I mean, that, once again, as Charles said, does not know she's in the world. I mean, it's as if she would be in hospice waiting to die, but she's a member of judiciary. See, that that tells you, and I'm not saying the Democrats are only guilty of this. I certainly uh, don't believe that for a second, but but if you're doing right by the country, I mean, if, if, you're, if your job is to be an advocate for we the people, how do you not, how do you still allow Dianne Feinstein to be on judiciary? Because it's not about we the people. It's about political activism. It's it's about getting my way. It's about what is in my best interest, what is in my belief system's best interest. And right now, they're trying to load up the courts with these radical nominees, and they need every Democrat voting for them. And if Feinstein's taken off, her replacement goes before the full body. Odds are the Republicans don't support it, and they don't have a majority on the judiciary. That's kind of where we've gotten. It may, Maybe that's kind of a microcosm of how broken our system is. And and I go back to what I said earlier, and I stick by this, Josh. Um, I understand 
that they're spin in politics. I understand that there are different opinions in politics, but the truth can't mean zero. Right. I mean, you can't govern a nation. You can't self-govern a nation. I mean, a dictator can. A monarch can. You know, they tell everybody where to get and what to do. And you damn well better do it. Well, we're not that. I mean, we're an experiment in self-governance. Man governing fellow man. There has to be some consideration for truth. And it's true that Dianne Feinstein has no business on a Senate Judiciary Committee. It's true that Dianne Feinstein, it's true Mitch McConnell has no business being the minority leader. I mean, if you you don't believe Washington, and and I think, I mean, I, I really and truly, I mean, to me, that's the Republicans' biggest problem. The leadership of the party and the donor class are asymmetrical to the voting base. I mean, they, they can be misaligned. They can be a little bit imperfect. The voters can be here, and, and the leadership and donor class and insiders can be there. That They can be within 10 or 15 degrees of one another. But when you have a total asymmetrical relationship between donors and insiders and elitists and establishment and the voting base, you end up with Donald Trump. You, you end up with RFK Jr. gaining a lot of interest, um, the, the, these out-of-the-norm candidates. And I think the only normal thing to do in America today is to vote for an out-of-the-norm candidate. I mean, you would be absurd. I mean, to, to me, if you vote for a, ah, if you vote for a Chris Christie, right, or if you vote for an Elizabeth Warren, you're basically saying, I don't think the system's broken. I mean, if you're voting for an RFK Jr., a Ramaswamy, a, a you know, a, a, a Donald Trump, I mean, you, you're basically endorsing that. I mean, even Bernie Sanders. I mean, they, these are political disruptors. And the reason that the public are so kind of entranced with them as candidates, they believe the system is broken. They're not sure. I mean, they don't listen to four hours of radio. Both I mean, sides want revolutionaries. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, they, we are in a very revolutionary period in American politics. Now, I don't think it's an American revolution. I don't think the citizenry will, will declare war on its government. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I think Biden has said, and, and I've asked this, I mean, what do you do? You, you go with a gun and they bring an F-16? You know, I mean, it, that, that's a mismatch. Talking about carrying a, uh, you know, a knife to a gunfight. Wow. Um, but, but there's this political discontent. And, and the discontent, I, I met with the Tim Scott crowd yesterday, and we were talking about, you know, the, the Republican primary and, the, the one thing I never understood, and I'd love to get Drew McKissick on the record here, I never understood when Trump brings these unwashed to the system, and I'm talking about people who normally don't vote, uh, rural America, um, white working class Americans. I mean, that's his, that's his army. We know that. That's not racist. I mean, the facts show that. Rural America and working class white people overwhelmingly support Donald Trump in droves, in the, by the millions of people. So the Republican Party gets a chance to engage people who have historically not voted Republican, historically not voted at all, could have cared less about what's happening in Washington. And they insulted those people. They continue to insult those people, the crazies, the kooks, the loons, the hayseeds, the hillbillies. Really? That lets me know it's not about doing the right thing. It's not about honoring the will of the people. It's about power. Right. And 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 if, and if and if a party has to go to work for the working class, guess what? They're not working for the donor class. But I mean, it's a zero sum game. There's only so much political capital. There's only so much to go around. And we're so heavily invested. Democrats and Republicans are so heavily invested 
in this in this donor class and the the, the Black Rocks and Vanguard and corporate America and Wall Streeters and and military industrial complex that you know the the forgotten man and woman were forgotten, and now they've raised up that they're 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 in kind of kind of I mean they're they're lighting the fire to a revolution, and the Republican Party's answer some of the insiders the Chris Christies of the world, uh, you know the uh, the Jeb Bushes of the world, the Carl Rose of the world. Uh, the Mitt Romneys of the world. I mean, th- th- their response was to insult these people, and, and uh, the absurdity of that. Politics is about addition, but but they would have had to forsaken their loyalty and commitment to the donor class and made as a priority uh, some of the working class. Let's go to the phone. We've got a couple of minutes here. We got Mike calling from Darlington. Mike, you're on the air. I, I tell you, I kind of go along with Bree, uh, Breeze. I'm, I'm just waiting for a bottle of fire coming down from heaven. Because it seems like they took, uh, all of a sudden, they just set us down in the middle of the House of Mirrors and the shooting gallery combined, and they got Neo and John Wick and Mr. Smith shooting it out all around us, all these little fireworks going off in every direction. And it seems like a very, very dangerous world, which should be relatively safe. Uh, I... I cannot believe all of the stories that are going on when there shouldn't be any stories going on other than the grass is growing and it's warm in the summertime. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Honor our vet of the week. Okay, Josh, we spend most of our time telling everybody what's wrong with the world, right? Right. We've gotten real good at telling everybody what's wrong with the world. If they only listen to us, we could fix about 75 or 80% of this. On, on, on Friday mornings, we talk about what's right with the world, and, and the men and women who have served in our armed forces deserve our bipartisan support. I know we don't agree on much when it comes to, to politics, but, um, but we've decided, along with some corporate sponsors, that uh, we're going to set aside a period of time and honor a vet. And we have with us this morning Tyrell Narciso. Is that right? Did I say That's that right? Correct. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I am doing well. I'll tell you, I'm from Pamplico. You are from? Marion. Okay, I'm so what Marion. What leads? I mean, I, I hear this story a lot. Small town kid goes to the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, because there ain't a whole lot to do in a in a small town. Is that kind of what led you down that road? That's Well, that's pretty much it. <laughs> um, But my family has a military uh, background, and my grandfather, that's how he got a citizenship uh, through the military. He retired. So, me, my brother, a few cousins, uncles, we all uh, follow suit. Okay, that last name isn't what I think of when I think of Marion. Where's your family originally from? Uh, Bluefields, Nicaragua. Okay, okay. Uh, let, let, let's. So you've been on two tours overseas. Yes. Sir. Um, for ten years. Am I right? Yes. Sir. So where were the tours, and what all did they include? Uh, I went to Iraq both tours, and the first tour was in. 2005 i went august 2005 uh it was supposed to be in iraqi operation iraqi freedom um we went over there to basically put um let's see i'm trying to figure out how to put it uh basically we went over to set a set up a government for them okay to help them set up okay we set up well my unit uh set up for the elections for the iraqi elections we guarded the elections um 
Because it was kind of crazy then, wasn't it? It I mean, was. I mean, it, it, there was chaos and nobody's in charge, right. really. I mean, we talk a lot about it, and I've read a lot about the, the power vacuum left, mm -hmm. you know, when Saddam Hussein was overthrown and all that stuff. So you're there trying to set up or trying to help set up a free and fair election. Yes. Is, is that fair to say? Yes. So, um, so, so was there an example? I mean, I always ask this because I think it's interesting. Two tours, is there any day or two or three that stands out in your mind? I mean, we had somebody get real emotional last week talking about, you know, when they lost people in Vietnam. Is is there anything that, that you just kind of brought home with you that you know you'll never forget? Um, Things that I saw. Uh, I can't say that it's just one or two or three days. It's many days. Every day is like you live, in, like basically like it's your last day because it was so hectic over there. Um, every day you're getting bombed, you're getting shot at. Uh, but one of the main things that I saw, or one of the worst things, I guess, is seeing, like, we used to do patrols and stuff with the Iraqi army. Um, they weren't as tactical as us, so they would die more, basically. Sure. Um, so we would be following behind the truck and see them get, you know, might see a head get shot, mm. like, blown open. Uh, might see them get blown up. And they just stand on the back of the truck, on like, with a gun, with no armor or nothing. So, you um, don't look like the kind of man that would get scared easy. But I got to believe fear is a part of that. It would have to be fear for yeah. your life. Like, when you first in, uh, get in country, the first couple weeks, like, even the people who's uh, been deployed already, they're scared. Because, Understandably. Yeah. You got a family back home, and in your mind, you're doing whatever you want. You know, you're going to do whatever it takes to make it back home. So you, you're afraid of not making it home. All right. So so let's go there. You did make it home. Thank the yes. Lord in heaven you did make it home. Um, What, what about she's better now? What, what about being or going through that experience made you a better husband, a better father, a better brother, a better, you know, you know, a better man. Just, um, being able to make it out of a situation like that, it changes you, uh, emotionally, like mentally, definitely. Um, it makes you appreciate life more. It makes you appreciate family and people more. Um, even it makes it made me appreciate being from America, like seeing the things that were going on going on over there, and just having to watch. You see kids being forced into being terrorists. They don't have choices. Like we have like more choices over here. Um, a lot of people say that we don't have freedom here. We have more freedom than they don't have any freedom. So. And it it taught you not to take that for granted. Is, yes. is that fair? Yes. Let, let's let's last question. Would you encourage a young person to consider a career in the military, and why? Um, I have two. I got two answers for that. So I would encourage them because in the long run, it will help. It'll help with structure, and uh, let's see. It'll give you more sense of direction as far as let's uh well for me it helped my thought process 
it was a lot of stuff that I didn't believe in, a lot of stuff that I didn't care to, you know, think about. So I would say for a young person, if they can go to college, that's fine. Go to college. Get your degree in whatever you're going to do. Uh, but if you haven't figured it out, you can go in the military. It don't have to be for 10 years, 20 years, anything like that. You're going for a year or two years. You'll figure it out soon. It, You'll it, figure out whether you want to be there or not. You grow up more in those years, too, than you yes. will uh, yeah. hanging around a college campus. I can, yes. I can assure you that. I want to thank you, and I mean that sincerely congratulations on uh, being nominated congratulations on being named our honor event but more than anything i want to thank you because once again we stir division on this show we've got real strong opinions but but i just think we're it, it, it's it's refreshing to hear someone say don't take that right for granted i mean that that right because okay. there are a lot of people in the world that don't get to host radio shows and don't get to say what they believe for fear of some sort of um government reaction Oh yeah. Well said, uh, Josh. We, we got not only do we say thank you, we got some corporate sponsors who um want to give you some pretty cool gifts. I'll let oh, Josh okay. tell you what you win. We do. We got the Honor Vet program is presented by Marlboro PD Electric, Florence Toyota, Pepsi Cola of Florence, and some of the prizes we have for you guys are gift bags from Pepsi Cola of Florence, as well as Tandem Health and FTC. You also get an oil change courtesy of Florence Toyota, and a bunch of gift cards from Swipe Payment Solutions, Wholesale Carpet. Heinz Furniture, and Piggly Wiggly of Darlington, Hartsville, Sumter, Manning, Bishopville, and Camden, as well as a gift card to the 19th Green Indoor Golf, and a gift, ba a gift basket from Boykin Heating and Air, and an overnight stay at the Hotel Florence, plus a gift card to dinner at Victor's. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> thank so, you very much. All right. Thank you for your support. Yes, sir. We will take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. I would use that worn-out meatloaf reference but we do that every time two or three are here so i'm not going to be as redundant and boring as that uh representative philip lowson and mike rickenbaugh are both with us jay jordan let me know last night that he was not going to be here today good morning to both of you morning morning now we've exchanged pleasantries now let's get down to business you ready so this doesn't apply to you but i want to get you, you, you both of you would have an interesting take on this because you're i mean i'm a guy who was in politics talks about politics both of you are in the body politic as we speak making real decisions that affect real people in positive and negative ways, however they interpret what it is you do. But but in this week, we've seen 80-something-year-old Joe Biden struggle. We've seen 80-something-year-old Mitch McConnell struggle. We've seen 90-year-old Dianne Feinstein have to be told how to vote on a, on a judicial nominee. I, I did some research just for this. 50% of Americans believe that the right age to serve an elected office is 51 to 63. 25% believe 35 to 52. Only 1% believe someone over the age of 80 should be serving in an elected office. I understand we have elections. I understand the people speak loudly and clearly. But is it time, Representative Law, I'll start with you, to consider some sort of age limit on these people you guys don't go there and stay forever. I mean, you don't. Um, but but the, being a member of the U.S. Congress is so financially lucrative that those folks stay there forever and ever and ever. I, I mean, I'm not asking you what age should someone be forced to come home. But, Philip, your, your comments 
on, on that reality? Well, we have uh, mandatory retirement for judges at 72. There must be a reason for that. And I mean, that was done a while back and we live longer now. So I mean, if you look at that, we, we, we have wisdom as we age, but our, our faculties begin to decline and, and not everybody at the same rate, obviously. And some people are better, but we also have a system that reelects me every two years. So if you think I'm turning into a doofus, you can say, hey, you can get rid of that guy. But now you got to decide, does the power he wields make this make it more advantageous to keep him there, even if he's not very smart because he's a chairman of whatever. He's he's attached to the money strings. You know, you got to go through all those machinations in your head to determine. But, hey, listen, you can get rid of me every two years. You know, judges are uh, 72, but uh, let the public decide. I, I mean, I don't think it's got to be mandatory because I don't think we're all the same. Mike? Yeah, you're having a great question. <laughs> it is a great question I, it's kind I of an inside joke there, yeah, continue. i think i would um, approach it a different way because I, I do believe we've got real issues there um, i'm a proponent of term limits i've always been a proponent of term limits i, I co-sponsored term limit legislation my first session there and i co-sponsored it again this year because i believe that is the mechanism that would take care of that and i know it's not there's no perfect system we've talked about that several times you know as far as selecting judges and several, you know, law enforcement, bond reform. There's no perfect system, Ken, but if we had term limits and if, I mean, at the federal level, and if we said we believe that the founding fathers expected people to work and then those who felt called would go serve the public and then they would go back to work to live under the same laws that they created, they may have a very different perspective on the laws they voted for. It's not meant to be politics is not meant to be a lifelong employment where you go in making a hundred grand a year and surprisingly you come out as a multimillionaire. It's not right. I think it erodes the trust that the, the that the citizens have in our elected officials and in the political process. And if we had term limits, I understand the concern would be, well, then is the institutional knowledge held with the bureaucrats, with the staffers? with the agencies. There's a concern there, and we'd have to discuss that, but you don't often see bureaucrats coming out with portfolios into the hundreds of millions of dollars in private planes like Nancy Pelosi has. So I think there's better ways to do it in term limits as I've held since the beginning. I would continue to hold for that. But, but why did you say federal? Why is that not a good state and local then? No, no I, I, my, my, my sponsoring of my legislation is state-level term limits. You would be limited to six terms in the House, 12 years. I'd be limited to three terms in the Senate, 12 years. And at 12 years, we go back to work full time and we open it up for new ideas, open it up for new people to come in, open it up for informed voters to have to select based upon how someone's character is and what they're doing, not just the last name. Mike, is that, is that 12 years negotiable? I mean, in other yes. words, if there are people out there absolutely. that say, oh, 16 would be a better a number. Absolutely. Okay. It's, it's, a start, it's a jump off point. And when I do my town halls, when I hear from folks, give me your opinion on term limits. Ken, it is 90% of folks who say yes, absolutely. But but they disagree on the number. You yes. know? I mean, and, and that's yes. a fair disagreement. I mean, that's a Philip, I want to go to something you talk. So so what do you perceive to be the difference in and here we go with from going to Washington? I mean, I've always maintained, I mean, I was with you guys for a while. I understand that you're not that insulated. You're not that removed from reality. You genuinely are a a, a citizen legislator. 
what do you perceive to be the problem with Washington? Is it the fact that those people just kind of sort of get so out of touch with the people they, they represent? I, mean, I don't want you to be critical of a congressman or a particular senator, but the system. I mean, the, the system Mike's speaking to. To me, I've always felt the federal government does allow you to get real disconnected from, from, from the genuine interests of the people. My salary is 10400 a year, okay? I can't go be a professional state representative. You just can't live. I mean, you got to come home and work. You, you <laughs> got to come home. So I stay grounded. I still have to make my payrolls. I still have to make my business work. Now, feds are different. Those guys go up there. They have to give up their day job, completely give it up. They can have passive income, you know, apartment buildings, stuff like that, stocks, dividends, but they have to give up their job. So we've almost painted them into a corner. Well, you got to stay here now because how do you go back after 12 years and start life over? How, how do you go start your practice over? Whatever it is you do, you got to go begin again in that. So we've painted them into that corner. I mean, it's, it's the rules we put in so they couldn't cheat and make money with their own business to go to Washington has created the politician who becomes a lifetime politician. Interesting. And I, I'll agree with you. I mean, it's just kind of a, it's damned if you do and damned if you don't. One of those sorts of scenarios, Mike. Yeah. If they come out having portfolios worth so much more than the regular Americans who put them there. If we were to dig a little deeper on, on both sides of the aisle, Ken, some of those 30 and 40 year Congress people look at what they're worth. Where does the money come from? If you can't have active income, how do you go in as a regular person and come out as a multimillionaire, multimillionaire. So I think those are the kind of questions that people, if they really knew the answers and they saw it with more transparency, they'd be concerned about the corruption and the graft because there has to be a connectivity between the, the money. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have Jason calling from Marion. Jason, you are on the air. Good morning there, Ken. Good morning there, uh, Congressman and Senator. Um, I have a question. It's kind of a local issue, and I was maybe you guys have heard some discussion, whether in chambers, and it has to do with Horry County. And I work down here in Horry County and Myrtle Beach, to be exact, and it's just a small area, maybe a 10, 15-mile radius. But the amount of construction down here is mind-blown. And, I mean, what is the state, and this may be an unfair question because you're not on county council but what is the the state or the county going to do about infrastructure i mean roads emergency personnel uh fire rescue police i mean if there was um a major storm to come in and they had to evacuate i mean it's going to be a total mess down here and i moved down here a little over 25 years ago and when i moved down here there was talk about this i-73 and that's gone by the wayside, and I'm not really too sure whatever happened with that. I mean, what is, do you guys have any information on what is going on with maybe some roads and how, I mean, the traffic down here is, you know, bad enough as it is. I mean, you can you imagine, you know, 20,000 more residents moving down here. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. I'll go on the record. So, so Philip may not remember this. So several years ago, Mike hadn't got in politics yet. Um, I'm sitting on 501 between Conway and Myrtle Beach, and I've got some business to take care of. And I'm heading down there, and it's Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock. I mean, it didn't Friday afternoon. It didn't check in, check out day that you know 
historically we've recognized Saturday and Sunday. I mean, you know better than to be an Aner on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> you just know better if you've ever been around here. So 2 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, I'm stuck in traffic between Carolina Forest. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the curse of the devil. I'm convinced of that. So I'm sitting there, and I, and I get PO'd, and I send Philip and Jay a text because <laughs> I didn't know who else to be mad at. So I sent them a text, and I said, look, I know you guys don't decide who lives where and what neighborhood gets built on what road. But, damn it, there's as many lanes of traffic going from Florence to Pamplico as there are from Conway to Myrtle Beach, and that makes no sense. Is there a is there kind of a master plan, Philip, when it comes to the coast and all the enormous growth? I mean, I understand delegating authority to some of those local, you know, the senator down there, the House members down there, the county council down there. But does does the state General Assembly have a responsibility to decide – what to do about these real fast-growing areas relating to infrastructure? Well, if we open up the arteries, more people come. You're going to have more people. If we make it better down there, you think you're crowded now? You know, get them, get them wide open lanes and let them come in and out as fast as they can. I'm a proponent of helping down there. It's, it's ridiculous, the, the traffic. And, and I was in Ways and Means, and I was trying to support it and trying to get money to that region, more roads for infrastructure, especially just trying to connect, what's that, 31 and 22? 31 and 22. Yeah, connect that up to to the interstate so people can get in and out of that road. That road's still not very crowded, but 501, good Lord, or, or some of that, 90 and some of those have gotten you know, impossible to go. But it's not the state's responsibility to necessarily go in and put that in, extra lanes and all in. It, uh, you say, well, whose is it? Well, there's local government. They're trying to raise money right now, right down there, to solve local problems. The problem becomes Marion's got no money. Marion can't contribute anything. They've got no tourism that can contribute dollars. But we've got the one-penny sales tax here. We've got that projected out for different projects, and originally it started with roads only. Well, they could take their one cent down there and combine it with another penny like uh, tourism tax and they could actually fund a road, but it stops at the Horry County line. <laughs> and unless the state or the federal government help, they can't get it from there to I-95. Because, Mike, it is it's kind of a – it cuts both ways. As Philip said, it's not really the General Assembly's problem to fix everything wrong with Horry County. But tourism is a, a macro contributor to our revenue. And, and as Philip said, you've got to be aware of how important tourism, and you've got to do what you can. So, so what, what do you perceive – the Senate's responsibility to be. Yeah, and I'm not sure there's a, a clear answer right now. Um, you're right, tourism's a big deal. Um, and we picked up a congressional seat um, about 10 years ago because of the growth in Horry County. So there's even the, the national ability to influence decisions that comes with, with that amount of growth. 30% growth in Myrtle Beach over a 10-year period. It's staggering. Second fastest growing MSA in the United States in Horry County between North Myrtle Beach, Myrtle Beach, and Conway. So the, the numbers are staggering. Um, but as of this point, I see part of our responsibility is that we represent, as a state senator, our district. I mean, I'll leave here, Joe, I'll be leaving a little bit early to head down through Pamplico and then to Johnsonville. I'm doing their teacher kickoff. There are folks I have that I'll see today that they still live on gravel roads, that they still have issues with water. They still have issues with no, uh, no fiber optics, no Wi-Fi down there. 
Um, so how do they work from home? How do their kids ever work from, work from home when they needed to? There's real infrastructure needs in rural South Carolina. So I don't discount the needs of Horry County and the needs of all those folks who are coming in from New Jersey and New York and Ohio and Michigan, and they're, they're, they're paying their property taxes and they're making a way here. Um, and I, I know as a state senator, as a state representative, the state is in the name. So we need to look at what's best for the state, but we're also meant to advocate for our constituents. And my constituents in District 31 you know, that Philip and I, we share a lot of them. They have needs too. And even though there's not as much growth, um, are we going to be able to pr- pr- provide for their needs and support them? Let's, um, do we have a call, Josh? We do. We okay. have Matt calling from Florence. Matt, you are on the air. Hey, guys. Uh, you said a buzzword that I always think of. Uh, I've always been against this I-73 thing because I don't think we should make it easier for people coming from New Jersey and New York or wherever to bypass our town. Um, if you look at Ainer and Conway and all those places, the reason why their economies are, are even halfway decent is because we force these people to pass through there. So I don't want people need to, to chill out with this whole I-73 nonsense. If you want to improve 501, go right ahead. But don't make it to where these people can bypass our towns and not spend money in them. Um, if you look at John, Johnsonville and Hemingway, that's a classic case of what happens when towns are bypassed. Um, they kind of just fade into nothing. Um, and I don't want to see that happen in Florence or Ainer or Conway whenever people can simply skip it and they're just coming on vacation. They don't don't make it easy for these guys. They're going to come here anyway, so don't worry about it. When you're sitting in traffic upset about all these cars, know that they're fueling your economy, stopping at your stores, buying your stuff, keeping the people that live in your area employed. And uh, that's a good thing. So just chillax with the whole I-73 nonsense. We don't need it, and we shouldn't want it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that, Philip. You know, several years ago, uh, I sponsored a bill. That was a pro-development bill. And I went over to the Senate, and and Chip Campson, and he's from the Charleston area, he had put his name up again. He he was trying to block it. And I'm looking there, I said, he's a Republican. He's blocking a development bill. I said, tell me what gives here. He said, I don't want any more in Charleston. They've ruined it already. I don't need any more Yankees down here. And and I, the switch kind of went on. I said, we don't really have that problem in Florence. We, you know, we could take a little bit of growth in Florence. You know, could you ship some our way? But he understood that, that, that the way he had grown up down there, his life had changed. Quality of life had changed in Charleston and we sold it out for money. So I, it's, it's a tough back and forth, uh, Generally, the environmentalists slow down most of the things that you want to do. Could, could you imagine widening lanes at 501? Wow. It would take three years to do, and how far you'd be backed up. You'd be backed up to Marion. I mean, so it's not easy. It's a, it, it's a mess. We've got to take a break. Don't want to get too far behind. Senator Mike Rickenbaugh, Representative Philip Lower here. Uh, your calls are welcomed and appreciated. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. You you guys are getting a treat, and I mean this sincerely. Um, for two elected officials at the state level to kind of come on a show every Friday morning and take it as it comes, <laughs> you just don't get much of that. And we don't filter calls. Josh has never said, "Oh, here's that such and such," or "Here's that question about such and such." And I think these guys have earned a lot of respect from the voting public by being willing to, in the blind, take questions that may be favorable or or may not be. And then they deal with me. And here's what I want to talk about. Because you were talking about the disproportional growth. 
I mean, we've all elaborated. Uh, it, it's a conundrum. I mean, it really and truly is. We've got places in our state that are growing faster than nearly everywhere in America. We've got others that just ain't. I come from a place that just ain't growing. And, uh, and I, you know, I have a great deal of sympathy for rural America. And I believe that rural America has a lot to offer. I just don't know how to restore it. I don't know how to rejuvenate it. I don't know how to revitalize it. Philip, in any way, shape, or form, I mean, you're conservative. Is it government's role or responsibility to try and do things to encourage opportunity and growth in rural South Carolina? Because you would agree that's the places that are getting left behind. I would put more confidence in Jason Aldean singing a song about it than government changing rural America. But you have to, you know, you have to not be a redistributionist as as a government either. Uh, you can't sit there and say, "Well, I want everybody to move to the city," or I'll, "And I want to give them incentives." But people go, and, and I was looking yesterday, but we both were in an economic development meeting, um, and. If you look at the top 10 things people were looking for, 10, 20 years ago, you didn't see quality of life really in the picture. Quality of life was number two. Now, that's a big, broad thing. Is it a pro football team? Is it, is it you know, a nice park? But quality of life is number two on the list now. And so people have changed. They're looking for different things. How, how do you keep your children here? Well, you better have a little growth and you better have a quality of life that they appreciate and mike all three of us fundamentally oppose taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots but but we, but we do understand that uh high tide raises all ships is, is that a fair thing to say it is a fair thing and, and i think when you look at look, productivity um, there's a case to say we need to support rural america more than we do rural south carolina um florence city contributes, and I believe that the last figure I saw, about 81% of all county revenues, the, and that is businesses within the city. But it's 75% of the employee base is outside of the city limits in other parts of the county. So it's great to talk about these businesses in Florence. Um, we've got businesses in Florence. But if we don't have the workers and the consumers from outside the city limits in other parts of the county, in the Pamplicos and the Cowards and the Scrantons and the Johnsonvilles. If they're not coming in to work and to buy things, you'll see these businesses either die off or be not nearly as successful. So it's not, I don't, I think limited government is a better approach. There's a role of government, but government doesn't fix things well. And I think government needs to, as much as possible, stay out of it. But I do believe that it's private industry and it's community leaders that need to have a bigger role. I met with Ford at some point to talk about could we do a satellite in a town like Johnsonville? Just a small little service department, a um, couple of cars in there, a couple of technicians. And, you know, these big companies will run their matrices and say, well, the math doesn't support it. There's not enough people. It, we will not allow a satellite because it doesn't support it. And my point is, okay, well, if we didn't support those communities, guess how many technicians and how many salespeople and how many consumers we wouldn't have at the big store in Florence City? So we need to really be mindful of the fact that those are our consumers and our workers. And then, Philip, one of the things you did or prioritized, I'll, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but you you committed to helping the county and city be in control of hard assets. I'm talking about land, and I'm talking about, you know, <clears throat> property and infrastructure and whatnot. I mean, that, that was something that you felt, via your research, led you to believe 
that if we don't have an asset available and ready, the likelihood of being successful is far less than if we do. Is, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, two years ago, we concentrated. I mean, the whole delegation concentrated on the industrial sites and getting them up to par so that we could attract industry. The industry attracts jobs and, and brings growth to your area. This year, we practiced or we, we focused on the workforce, and we looked at K-12, uh, tech, and higher ed with, with the four-year schools of Francis Marion, and we funded things that will will help us with our workforce. We met with economic development yesterday. Wasn't it yesterday? Two, uh, two days ago. Two days ago. Yeah. Uh, time flies when you're on a track, hope. Hmm. <laughs> so, and, and they started telling us one of the problems we have is we don't have enough workers to probably supply, you know, just the, the one plant that's coming, the battery plant. We don't have enough workers. So we've got to, to build some infrastructure that that not only attracts industry, but we've got to build our own capital right here, our local infrastructure, and we've got to attract people. And we can't just lose people who don't see an opportunity in a small town. We want them to come to a medium-sized place, Florence, rather than go to a, a big city. And there's a balance to it, Mike. I mean, as Philip says, I read something somewhere that the residential growth, we talked about Horry County a second ago, the residential growth in Horry County, you said 30%. I mean, one of the fastest growing uh, housing markets in America, that the grocery stores needed to catch up. In other words, that they're, this is kind of crazy now, but there were like six or seven Publix grocery stores in design phase, being approved by planning and zoning, just to meet the demand of all the houses. So there has to be kind of a um, a process and a procedure. And to Phyllis' point, it has to be a little bit visionary and looking forward. Yeah, and that's a challenge for then for the the rural communities because Publix is not looking at a, a Coward or a Pamplico or Johnsonville. But I'm you know like you, I went to a town with with two stoplights and sixty three people in my graduating high school class, just a small public farm school. Um, quality of life is what we provided that a lot of larger metropolises or even medium-sized towns don't have that. Now, that's a tough sell if you also want a nice grocery store and you want to be able to go to a movie and you want to be able to go to a couple of nice restaurants. So there's that medium ground where we can try to help these small rural towns sell quality of life. Uh, is Wellman ever coming back to Johnsonville? I don't think so, Ken. And I'd like to say it is, but I don't think so. And again, I'm heading down there today and we do all we can for them, but I don't believe it's going to come. So what can we get? Can we get a 200 person employer to come down there and that employer is able to sell to their employees? Look, look at the quality of life you could have here. Your kid can play three sports and not have to worry about being a five-star recruit, which you would have to in some of the larger schools. You know your neighbors, you're able to, to, to be a part of the community. I mean, there's a, a sell there, but we have to market it. Well said. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have Jim calling from Florence. Jim, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. So one of the things uh, Ken's talked about is maybe the the first uh, no income tax on the first fifty thousand. Well, we certainly need people having children, um, and we would certainly prefer that it be married people having children. Uh, I mean, is there any real conversation at the state level? Um, to address this lack of growth, population growth that we're going to have in the upcoming future. Um, now, granted, South Carolina is not going to deal with it like other states, but of incentivizing married people to have as many children as possible. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, 
Jim, appreciate that. Anybody want to jump down that road? L- leave it to Jim to bring up something nobody's talking about yet. I mean, that's just kind of his thing. He's um he's a bit like I am with a busy head head syndrome. <laughs> Philip, I mentioned um JD Vance has argued. I mean, he's not in charge, so we can't say let's do this. But he's offered up, and JD Vance would be an America First Republican um, from Appalachia. Goes off to Yale, um, meets Peter Thiel, makes some money, runs for Senate in the state of Ohio, wins. But he's offered up um, kind of in a casual way, working-class Americans not paying any tax, federal tax on their first $50,000 of income. Could we do something like that? I mean, I know we're not in the business of picking winners and losers, and we're conservatives, and you can't take from the haves and give to the have-nots. But, but could we consider, could the state, would the state have the authority to consider incentivizing financially someone to get married or move to a rural area? I think marriage, we should be incentivizing. I don't know that we should incentivize children, except, you know, you get a deduction, you know, that's about it. But, you know, when you, when you take away the income tax for people, say, under 50, they've got no skin in the game. It's easy to vote for tax increases. It's easy to vote for politicians who want to increase your taxes. But if everybody's got a little bit they pay in, you know, that makes sense. And, I mean, we've got to graduate. They might not pay but 5%, and, uh, and somebody else may be paying 30%, you know, it's a federal and state or, or even much higher than that. But if you take away all that, I, well, I don't have to worry about taxes because they're going to pay it. That's what we're dealing with now. It's bribing people. The Democrats bribe people to, to essentially say, you know, don't tax me, tax them. And Republicans get in office and they reduce it a little. And that little up and down, capital gains, things like that, up and down, up and down, you know, depending on what administration gets in and they get a little, I had a tax cut and the next one gets in, they have a tax increase. And it's always uh, pitting basically the have and the have nots against each other. That's, that's kind of sad, but that's, that's where we're at. And the weird part with Democrats, they have some of the most extreme haves and the extreme have nots. You know, they kind of skip the middle class. As far as I'm concerned. And that's where the Republicans have kind of found some fertile soil in yep. that in that working class, middle class America. Mike? Yeah, I'd be very leery of, of any incentivizing that could lead to any kind of tax increase. I want to stay away from any kind of tax increase. Um, but I do believe that having the conversation and the encouragement and the education behind being married is a good thing. If we look at the statistics, I, I just spoke about this last week, 23% of children in South Carolina live under the poverty level. So that's one in four. But statistically speaking, and I know I'm an accountant, so my mind's very linear, but can you stick with me here real quick? Statistically speaking, there's a double-digit decline in poverty when a person follows four steps in order. It's got to be sequential order. First step is graduate from high school. Second step is get gainfully employed. Third step is get married. Fourth step is have children. You take one of those four steps out of order, the increase of poverty is double digit. So if you graduate from high school, but then you get pregnant before you get married, double digit in kind. You get pregnant before you graduate from high school, double digit increase in poverty. Four steps linearly, sequentially in order. Graduate high school, get ma- or get a job, get married, have children. It provides for better opportunities for your children, better communities, better workers, less incarceration. So having that conversation to these young people and saying, like, look, you want your life to have a better chance of success? Don't count on the government. There, Here's the plan. And somebody loudly and proudly saying that thing or That's those right. things to those young people we're talking about. Do we have a call? We do. We have Greg calling from Johnsonville. Greg, you're on the air. 
Good morning. Um, Mike, I want to say I'm glad you're coming to Johnsonville today. Um, I'll be there in about an hour. About an hour. He's got to get through. He's got to go through Pamplico to get there. And it'll probably be real busy on a Friday morning. But you're talking about growth and you know the rural areas. Um, the local realtor who does most of the realty work around Johnsonville, he's told me on numerous occasions he has, I mean, hundreds of people wanting to move to Johnsonville, but there's no houses. There's nowhere for them to move to because when he puts a house up for sale or list the house, usually within one to two days, it's already off the market under contract. Um, so I just don't know if there's a developer that would be willing to come to Johnsonville and build some houses or what needs to be done. But, I mean, he said he's got a list of people waiting to come. That's really encouraging. Thank you, Greg. And, Appreciate that. And, I, you know, I'm not a builder. I mean, maybe Philip can speak to this. I got to think there's some pretty sophisticated modeling that developers do to say if there's the take rate and the market saturation in these particular markets, it's about returns. I mean, if it's a risk if, reward, yeah, it always they're selling the risk reward. If houses sell that quickly out there, why would a, a company like a DR Horton or a, a Southern Homes or what, why would they not be building homes there, you think? Well, they want to development is going to take off they they will be building 10 pads 10 houses all at once so they like to come in and flood the market with a bunch of them uh and they're not these onesie and twosie kind of people that are going to build two or three a year so they're looking for faster growth than that now i think that johnsonville is is positioned well geographically to be a bedroom community for the coast i really we were talking about it off the air i They've got that ability all the way up to Pampico. To be honest, uh, you got D.R. Horton and Century Complete that have come to the Florence area in the past two or three years. Those are national companies that are here. Why are they here? It's not just Florence growth. It's people that don't want to quite make it to the coast and get in the middle of all that congestion, but they feel like, well, five times a year I could drive there and I'd love to visit there. Plus, the lot that you buy here is half the price of the lot you'd buy down at the beach. So there's fifty, sixty thousand dollars savings right there. For, and you say, well, shoot, how much does it cost to drive to the beach? It's yeah. not that inconvenient because none of them are, are coming in with enough money to live on the beach. They're in neighborhoods five, ten miles off where your view is the same, whether <laughs> whether you're five miles from the beach or two blocks from the beach, you, you don't see the ocean. Yeah. Uh this um little rich for my blood to see the ocean. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. There was a day impeachments were rare. <laughs> Not so much the case now. Impeachments are like full moons. They come around about every about every month. Now there's the mention of another potential impeachment, but it's an impeachment inquiry. Um, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has kind of floated the idea of an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Uh, so some of these um uh, some of these stories about peddling influence or bribery and foreign governments and his son acting as a as a foreign agent. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is in our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you? Um, well, you know, the very first impeachment inquiry vote in the House of Representatives happened against Thomas Jefferson in 1809, and it failed 117 to 1. Wow. Did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up because I was curious how long, like, because, you know, an impeachment inquiry is, is the process, right? That's the first step uh, that the House of Representatives would generally take in whether or not to start pursuing uh, an impeachment. It's how 
Democrats handled it in the uh, first impeachment of, of uh, President Trump. And it's certainly how, um, you know, we would expect Republicans if they move forward uh, to handle it in the case of Joe Biden. Um, you know, what was notable about what Speaker McCarthy said this week is it was the first time that he sort of publicly indicated that he was at least open to the possibility of doing this. I, I see his um, strategy here very similar, actually, to the strategy that Pelosi took um, in the first impeachment of Trump. You know, you had the base of the party. You certainly had members of that party uh, who wanted to impeach the president sort of from the get go. Right. There were Democrats who were ready to impeach Trump on day one. There were Republicans ready to impeach Biden on day one. The Speaker of the House sort of has had to hold that back. Right. And move forward kind of in a methodical uh, way once it becomes clear that the numbers um, are on the side of going one way or another. Right. And so I do wonder if what you heard from Speaker McCarthy this week is sort of a signal that it's time to get consensus on this. Right. He makes this statement a couple of days before the House broke for its six week August recess, a time that members are going to spend about six weeks in their uh, districts back home, probably talking to constituents, having a lot of these types of, of interactions with voters uh, to maybe get a sense of where they are. How big an issue is this for voters heading into the, the 2024 election? Recall you have several members uh, in the Republican House who represent districts that were won by President Biden, who may face tough reelections themselves. Is this something that they want to spend a lot of time on as they're trying to get reelected? And so these are all going to be calculations, I think, that are made. Now, obviously, uh, as the House Oversight Committee continues its investigation, uh, perhaps they come forward with something that, that sort of breaks the dam, right, breaks that levy and changes uh, the, the thinking of it. But, you know, I do think right now the question of um, impeachment, as it generally is, is a very political one that lawmakers are going to have to decide. Jared, I'm bad about turning you guys into conservative radio show hosts, and that's so unfair to you when you join us, and I want to be careful with that. But but it seems to me that McCarthy is insinuating that the, the, the inquiry is somewhat of a reflection, a reaction to a belief that his voters don't believe the DOJ is being fair and objective. And this is kind of to, to, to solidify his standing with his voters that, that maybe we don't trust the DOJ to properly, you know, um, uh, investigate these issues, but the impeachment inquiry puts us in charge. Is that is that a fair characterization? You know, I, I think that's certainly part of it, right? There is certainly an indication from many Republicans that they think that the way that, you know, the investigation in the Hunter Biden has been handled is improper. Uh, that being said, um, they can't impeach Hunter Biden, right? Um, he's not uh, impeachable. Um, and presidents uh, can't be prosecuted. So that leaves the House of Representatives sort of in a position that if they are able to find some link between these business deals of Hunter Biden and his father, uh, that they would have to take action. Um, and again, I don't think that they have that link yet. At least they haven't publicly shown what that link is. I know that they have brought in a lot of um, bank records, and they're looking into it. There's a big witness that's going to testify, Devin Archer, uh, next week for the House Oversight Committee behind closed doors uh, about uh, he's a former business associate of Hunter Biden, and, and he allegedly is going to testify that there were conversations that included um, the president or at that time the vice president. And so, yeah, this would have to be a, a reaction to that to some extent. But that being said, McCarthy also has to make sure 
um, that he's able to protect members going down this path, right? Um, especially maybe vulnerable members. You don't want to sort of take action on something um, that could, you know, imperil members, uh, one, that have it fail, which I think would be a, a big setback for Republicans, but also not put Republicans in a position that, like, they're going to have to go back to their home districts and, and kind of explain this. And maybe that's tougher for some members than others. Not every, you know, not every House district's the same. <laughs> um, some of them are really swingy, and, and the issues that matter to voters are very different. And you see that play out um, in the Democratic caucus as well, which is why um, there was a very slow kind of, at least in the first, I know the second impeachment was much different, but the first impeachment of President Trump uh, really went about kind of a very slow, methodical, a lot of Democrats complained too slow and methodical manner. Very well explained, and that's when I remind myself I live in one of the reddest states in America, but every state in is red, as, as South Carolina. Jerry, th- <laughs> thank you for your time, and have a good weekend, sir. You too. That's kind of it. You know, we, we have to remind ourselves that some of these Republicans that McCarthy will ask to step out are in swing districts. I mean, they're not in, you know, good old red state South Carolina or a good old red state Wyoming. Uh, what, what about the um, the member of the House of Representatives from a very swing district in Pennsylvania? You know, I mean, that that's a, that's a marginal call at best. And McCarthy's got a, I would imagine, the job of speaker is to get some sort of consensus. You know, are you willing to go there with us? Now, now I do believe the the... The, the macro narrative is we don't trust the DOJ. And we believe that if, if, ju- if justice is ever going to be served, it's going to be by the oversight ways and means and an impeachment inquiry that, you know, c- kind of uh, in the rounds, the, the DOJ. I want to ask Josh this. We'll yeah. get to our call in two seconds. Cool. You've heard for two days the argument I've tried to make. Um, I, I think it's somewhat compelling. Uh, you've got a um, – you've got a – uh, a litany of individuals who are saying kind of sort of the same thing. And then you've got Joe Biden saying something different to, to you, Josh, not to me. What is the most compelling information on this side of the equation that Joe Biden did know Joe Biden did participate. Joe Biden was well aware. Joe Biden did financially gain. I mean, of all the, I mean, from Bob Alinsky to the FBI informant, uh, the IRS whistleblowers, uh, Devin Archer, we, 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 we believe will say some of the corroborating things. But from your perspective, Josh, I'd be interested. What is the most compelling evidence or information that, that, that leads you to believe that there's a lot more here than the media is trying to lead America into believing? Well, I think when you analyze these things, you have to take into account both what is being said and what is not being said. And I think most people tend to look at what is being said, which actually in this case, I think is the most important thing. So what makes me think Biden is guilty of, you know, I don't know if treason is the right word, but, you know. Well, let me, bribery and treason are the only two listed in the Constitution specifically. Take it. Yeah. Taking bribes. I would say the fact that of Hunter Biden's documented incompetence. And their vehement rejection of what is being said. How, like, like we've discussed before on the show, how Democrats they, it's it's always extremes. It's it's there is no collusion. There's no evidence. Blah blah blah. There's like, how dare you even ask? What are you stupid? They're making all this up. Right. They they they. You know, if if he were innocent, 
they would say that, you know, they would, they would say, Hey, here's the emails. And he's not emailing him, but they're not They're They're trying to sweep this under the rug. They're trying to come up with a counter narrative. Exactly. A coherent counter narrative. And that's why the media is waiting. I mean, the media is waiting for their marching orders. The media is waiting for the Biden and, and for the Bi- Biden Inc. and Democrat Inc. to come up with a, a coherent counter narrative that they can try and sell to the American public. But they've not come up with a coherent counter narrative. All they've done is said, well, Trump sucked, and you know how the Republicans are. And that's just, um, I mean, that that's a weird, well, I mean, when it's all you got, it's all you got. Mm-hmm. But, but I, you know, to, to, to me, this is kind of interesting. Maybe not to, to you guys, but the New York Times said yesterday that it's harder to believe the previous narrative. That's kind of sort of setting the table for where I think the Times believes will eventually, at some point in at time, get. Now, now, once again, the the conservative radio world has said it over and over and over again. Fox News has beat that drum, uh, you know, nearly 24-7. CBS, NBC, ABC have touched on it, not very much, but but the you know the um the true bastion of American liberalism, the New York Times said yesterday, it's getting harder to believe the previous narrative. That that's kind of a I mean that that's a, that's a leak in the dam, so to speak. Right. So Jeff came on the other day and he was talking about how well nothing's been proven yet. What what has come out yet, which is fine. But that's what you said. You said this is what is being alleged. Sure. You made that very clear. But, of course, it's always, you know, like, well, well, where is it? Where, Where's this evidence? It's like, but come on, like, doesn't this look suspicious? Can well, you at least admit that? Well, I mean, I remember the days of Trump and Paul Manafort and his arrest. I mean, he got, you know, his home got raided. He and his wife were held at gunpoint. I mean, seriously, I mean, that's what happened. CNN was there, I think, with their cameras. And at the end of the day, I mean, the, the most guilty, I mean, I, I guess the most outrageous thing he did was not register as a foreign agent. The same thing Hunter Biden has not done. Right. And, and, I, and I go back to the, the judge a couple of days ago when the judge asked specifically about his involvement with Burisma. And she asked, um, did he have immunity? from a violation of the foreign agent's re- registration. I mean, that's dog whistle to me. I mean, that's here we go. I mean, that that's say, and, and, and the prosecutor said that he could be prosecuted. I mean, the DOJ said, yes, he can be prosecuted. Um, and the defense, that's when the deal blew up. Well, I mean, the judge knew what question to ask. And, and I think when you ask that question, it goes back to what Andy McCarthy said yesterday. There's not been an indictment. This is bizarre to me. I mean, there, there's been a plea, that there's been charges and a plea. There's been no indictment. And the reason there's not been an indictment, Josh, I told you earlier today, the reason there's not been an indictment, an indictment stops the clock. Right. They want and the statute to, to sure. run out. I mean, if, if there had been an indictment, the statute of limitations does not lapse. It does not apply here. But there is no indictment because the Justice Department wanted the statute of limitations to expire. Here we are. But but it blew I mean, it all blew up when they they couldn't clarify what immunity meant. And some of the immunity was in this diversion agreement that, that treated the gun charges. And I mean, it's just, it, it's a home-cooked deal. I mean, it, the, the fix was in. And had the judge gone along, 
I mean, the American public don't understand plea bargains. We don't understand diversion agreements. And we don't, I mean, we always expected Hunter Biden to get a lenient sentence. Yeah. I mean, it, that's just the way our system works. I mean, if you've got enough money to hire good lawyers, doesn't matter if you're prominent or not, you're going to get a better shake because you had enough money to go get really good lawyers. I'm not saying Hunter Biden's the only guy that has ever got a sweetheart deal. I mean, there have been a lot of people who have gotten sweetheart deals. They've just not been the son of a president, and they didn't have – there was not any chance. I didn't even say likelihood. There was not any chance at implicating the leader of the free world in some sort of bribery scandal. That's why that they that the, the defense was very – the defense and DOJ were very considerate in this diversion agreement to not include any of the the Farah because Farah leads to where? It stops beginning about Hunter Biden. I mean, when you start asking a question about foreign agents and getting paid by foreign governments, I mean, that's when you open the door to investigate Joe Biden. That's where we're going to end up, whether it's an impeachment inquiry, uh, whether it's – the DOJ is not going to do it. I mean, they're already – the DOJ has proven they're not to be trusted. But you've got an impeachment inquiry – You've got a, a House of Ways and Means investigation, and you got a House Oversight investigation. And, I, yeah, I mean, surely I'm a Republican. So, so, I mean, I get it. Oh, okay, you're a Republican trusting the Republicans to do right. In this case, I think they'll do a, a good job of getting to the bottom of it. But, but it's, it, it, we, we've gotten ourselves to a point now, and there are allegations. I mean, nobody knows what the truth is. I mean, I suspect I know what's true, but you've got a – You've got an, a growing list of people on this side saying very, very similar things, and you've got Joe Biden saying the same thing he has said. Well, he hadn't said it recently, but but up until recently, I knew nothing about my son's business dealings. KJP, the black lesbian, I knew nothing about my son's business dealings. So the president knew nothing about his son's. But but now it's the president has never been in business with with his son. We're moving the goalpost. And I think that's probably what the New York Times is picking up on. Let's go to the phone. We have David calling from the PD. David, you're on the air. Hey, Ken, I just want to tell you, man, Josh is doing such a great job. And I was thinking about this. Um, you know, Dave is where he needs to be, and there's no better time spent. Well, here's one thing. Dave knows with Josh there, all is well at the studio. So I just want to say that to you, Josh. Um, Thank you, David. Was that was that the amazing Randy? Was that Kato there yesterday? I think it's ground beef guy. I think that's what he's, he's going to do. Ground beef guy. Okay, I'll need to go on there. Hopefully Randy can make I mean Randy here, Josh, it's good that you met Randy because I think Randy's one of the coolest guys ever. Think about it, man, the guy Skinnered the Kings and the Braves. You remember that, right, Ken? I do. I do. There were days that uh, Randy, you call him Bible Thumper, he was tough on crime. I said, that doggone Cato Callahan, he was the electrical sectional. He would just send them all at one time to get. But Randy's a cool guy, man. He had his, I don't know if he still got his ice cream truck or whatever, but I tell you what, he's a cool guy. But I'm going to brag on your show real quick. You know, what Josh uh, and Alec and Mike and these guys are call greeters. In other words, they're not call screeners. Most of these talk shows, they're going to ask you what you want to talk about so they can fit into the host narrative. And I'm going to give you credit, Ken. I mean, you just flat out take a raw caller, and I think you like this. 
you just take a raw caller and have to deal with it. And it's, it's amazing how our politics and everything is so scripted these days. And it's the beauty of the show is that somebody can just take a raw caller and just have to deal with it. And, and, and your, your responses to it are, are fun. So y'all have a great weekend, my man. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Uh, Josh is coming in more this week because obviously Rev's not here. So Josh has taken on kind of multiple roles. He's not just the producer and, and call um, greeter. He is also a contributor more more than he's been uh, since he got here. But but Josh came in uh, one day earlier this week and said something about, hey, uh, here, here's kind of what I want. I said, don't tell me what you want to say. I don't want to know what you want to say. What we're going to do better if it's spontaneous. It's more authentic. It's more real. It's more genuine. It's be- more believable. I don't want to script anything. But he was trying to be respectful of me. Um, I think the beauty of this show is what you see is what you get. What you hear is what you get. There's no rehearsal here. I mean, in all honesty, we make it up as we go. I am, I mean, I think I'm versed enough in whatever the issues that are relevant to speak about with some degree of um, of understanding. Not I'll make it up. I mean, that's what politicians do if they're caught flat-footed and off guard. You just kind of, you make up something that sounds like you know what you're what you're talking about. But, but uh, you know, I know what I want to talk about. It's kind of funny. The the only time I've been nervous this week talking on the air was reading the Honor of Vet sponsor list. Because it was scripted. Exactly. And, and I, I just, I don't like, I think the world is so scripted and people don't sense authenticity or, or, or genuineness. And I, we, we want to try. But if we don't do anything else, we're, we're going to maintain that part of our show. Take a break. Back in a few moments. It takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. In the 8 o'clock hour, we had Senator Mike Rickenbaugh, Representative uh, Philip Lowe, and we're talking about rural America. Um, South, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Um, I have been up close and personal to an agrarian economy and, and watching the coast grow, juxtaposed to the way some of rural South Carolina has struggled to find growth. Um, the farm bill was always important in my world. I mean, I remember as a county council member representing a lot of farmers, and they were always nervous about the farm bill, concerned about the farm bill. But I don't remember many people being nervous about foreign ownership of U.S. farmland until now. And um, the, the Congress is beginning to consider whether or not to limit, I guess, corporate and foreign ownership of U.S. farmland. Ain't the farm bill I remember, but it's where we are um, today, I guess, instead of Homeland Security, farmland security would be in vogue. Fox News Radio's Jeff Benasso is in Chicago. Jeff, good morning. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well, thanks, Jeff. For, for people trying to buy into the farming industry, it's becoming tougher and tougher and almost impossible. With the average price of an acre of U.S. farmland, almost $4,000 in 2022. That's a record high. And it's up 75% from 2008, according to USDA data. And so now you've got a group of lawmakers from both parties that are pushing legislation that would limit corporate ownership uh, over concerns that land buys by investors, even foreign countries, are driving up these prices that farmers just cannot afford and, and threatening also national security. The Senate on Tuesday passed an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that would boost federal review of foreign-owned farmland that accounts for tens of millions of acres. Canada, actually, the largest owner uh, in terms of foreign nations of U.S. farmland uh, at about 
31 percent of of, uh, of total land owned by foreign countries. China holds less than one percent, but still uh, about one point five billion dollars worth of, of U.S. farmland. Um, and and we've we've seen concerns that the latest that China scooped up 400 uh, about 400 acres uh, uh, near the Grand Forks Air Force Base, North Dakota. They want to build some big corn milling plant there, but the military looked at that and said, hey, this is a security risk. That project was later scrapped. So these lawmakers are actually hoping to to limit China's ability to purchase U.S. farmland and require the federal government to even consider stripping some Chinese and foreign landowners of their real estate. And you ask, well, why are these nations doing it? What do they use the land for? Uh, you know, you can follow the money. Uh, the, the the you know major do you just look at uh, for example uh, investment companies that that uh, that uh, that own uh, that that own uh, U.S. farmland uh, like Nuveen Natural Capital, it's a subsidiary of TIAA Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association of America and UBS Farmland Investors. They've got about sixteen billion dollars worth of, of farmland, according to the National Council of Real Estate Investment Fiduciaries farmland index and um so there's a lot of money to be made but again it's also a national security risk as you as you look at china's uh, land buys near military bases and so i think if you're a farmer it's probably encouraging that at least this is a bipartisan effort to say wait a minute something's wrong here we're going to look into it we're going to try and do something about it now uh, you're in politics you were in politics if something if something actually gets done uh, that remains to be seen. But, Jeff, this is where I get confused, and you may can provide some clarity here. So if I'm interested in selling my farm because I'm tired of it, my kids don't want anything to do with it, and some Chinese company offers me $7,000 an acre, the market value is $5,000 an acre, does a government agency have to approve or disapprove of that deal? I mean, is that kind of where – I mean, is is that what the 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 folks who support this endeavor are are seeking? Uh, yes, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not sure that they're going to come in and say it and, and, and be the, the go between, uh, in, in these types of sales, but that certainly is a possibility. Um, you know, they, they've, they've, they've introduced bills in recent months to, to limit foreign ownership and perhaps that it, that's, that's how it's going to work. I don't, I don't know the details on exactly how this would work, but, um, You've got lawmakers on both sides, both Democrats and Republicans, and, and many from farming states like Iowa uh, and, and, you know, and others that are just saying, wait a minute, this is something's wrong here. Cory Booker, New Jersey, he's, he's, he's in on it. Debbie Stabenow, Michigan, she's in on this and, um, and others. Uh, so we'll see what happens. That's very interesting. Yeah, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend, sir. You do. Um, and I get real torn here. I mean, th- this is where – philosophy and ideology meet practicality and the real world. I don't think it's in our best interest to sell farmland to China or Chinese corporations or big corporations for that matter. But how does a conservative square that up? I mean, if a, if a, if the market value of my land, let's say I farmed all my life and I'm 75 years old and I don't want the farm any longer my kids didn't want to farm. One went to school and became an engineer. The other one off and got into business. The other works at, at UPS or FedEx or whatever. Um, and here I am with a thousand acres of farmland. It's the, by far the largest asset I have in my world, in my life. 
It's a very valuable um, piece of farm property, and the going rate is $4,000 an acre, but some Chinese business comes along and offers me $7,000 an acre. I mean, is the government going, I mean, are we going to allow the government to cost that farmer that much money? I mean, I understand, once again, I said ideologically, I, I'm, I think the farmer should be allowed to get all he wants. But, but you know, the, the practical person in me, I, I can be practical at times, not very often, but at times, I can be very practical. The practical man in me says, we don't need all those damn Chinese companies owning all this farmland. We don't need corporate America having such control over all this farmland. We can make more widgets. We can make more steak dinners. We can make more automobiles. We can make more solar panels. We can make more farmland. I mean, that's why my dad believed in investing in property. I mean, my dad would say the land that he owned on such and such and such and such ain't good for anything but holding the world together. But they're not making any more of it. So, so when you think about it, Josh, we, we, you know, we can replace widgets with widgets. We can replace whatever with whatever. But we can't create more farmland out of thin air. We just can't. You can't build a manufacturing plant and say, hey, your job is to create farmland. I mean, we can we can build solar panels. We can build you know we can build refineries. It's, it, I get torn. I mean, I, it, that gets really really complicated because that would be an issue where my philosophy and ideology collide with what I believe to be in our best interest. I don't think the government should be allowed to cost that farmer that much money. But but I think America is better off if that farmer doesn't sell that land to some Chinese enterprise. That's why uh, I've told you several times uh, on and off the air that I am not a against big government. I'm against this big government. And I think this is a perfect example of why the the mentality of like just anti-big government in general starts to fall apart. Because I saw that, I don't know how true this is, but I saw this uh, statistic that apparently 80% of the most uh, expensive penthouses and apartments in New York City are owned by China and are completely empty. And they're just buying them up and not using them so that they can have stock in American property. I think this is an example of when the U.S. government should step in and say, you know, in the in the case of the farmers, you okay, China, you can buy U.S. property, but you have to you can buy farmland, but you have to start a farm and you have to hire Americans to work on it. Activist conservatism. Yes, I mean it's what J.D. Vance talks a lot about. You know, what we we can conserv can conservatives become political activists by utilizing government to their advantage. Historically, we've kind of sort of shied away uh, from that. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have Scott calling from Pamplico. Scott, you're on the air. Scott? Scott is not there. 843-661-0937 is our number. Do we have him now? Uh, no, but we do have Jim calling from the PD. Jim, you're on the air. Sounds like Jim's on a tractor. It's, yeah. Huh? You there, Jim? Oh. Hey, hey. Jim, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Turn that truck okay, off. We can't <laughs> hardly hear you. Okay. Hey, Ken, um, the thing that gets me, they can treat this uh, property they bound over here like China and the rest of them. They could use it as a, um, their own foreign embassy, and they would have all kind of limited power as far as, you know, trafficking guns or anything like that or satellite or um, anything to spy on us. And that concerns a lot of people, no question about it. 
Um, I, I, I think I recounted. Thank you. Appreciate the call. I think I recounted the conversation that I had with Robert Cahaley earlier this week. Earlier this week, we talked about Peter Thiel, and Ro- Robert's convinced me that Thiel is kind of a one-horse pony. Excuse me, a one-trick pony, a one-horse pony, a one-trick <laughs> pony, and that one trick is China. I mean, he's he's a he's a libertarian-leaning uh, Republican who's given a lot of money. I mean, he's a complicated dude. We know that. I mean, he founded or co-founded PayPal with Elon Musk. He was the first investor in Facebook. I mean, he's got gazillions of dollars. He's a gay Silicon Valley conservative. Robert says he's somewhat of an anarchist. Uh, you know, on some issues, he's obviously a libertarian. On some, he's a, he's an anarchist. But his, I mean, his his focus is on China. And I've said it before, before Teal says it, and I, you know, obviously don't have the, the swagger that he has, nor the sway that he has. But I believe, as threatened as I felt as a young adult by Russia and the Cold War, my kids will deal with a greater threat than Russia ever was at the Cold War, and that is China. I mean, that they are the preeminent geopolitical adversary this country has ever known since the modern day. I'm talking about post-Second World War. I mean, obviously, we're a kind of a baby of a nation. We dealt with a lot of things early in our existence. But but since we become a superpower, I mean, this is it. I mean, this is, I mean, I do believe this is ground zero for will America sustain its prominence in the world or not because China is standing ready, willing, and able to take our place. And there's nothing, China does not want to be the other superpower. China wants to be the sole superpower. Let's go to the phone. We have Scott calling from Pamplico. Scott, let's try this one more time. You're on the air. Hey, guys. Good morning. You know, it's all great points because everybody should be able to make as much money as they can on the property they have and, and, and not have limitations per se. But, I mean, let's be honest. You go to Pauly's Island or Georgetown or what have you, there, there's regulations there of what you can and can't build, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't see anything wrong with us at least looking into coming up with ways that foreign entities can just come in and, and purchase whatever they want to purchase and um, and everything else. So I, it's, it's, it is a slippery slope because you should be able to make as much as you want to make, but we also got to protect our house. So, Scott, are we, are we putting a price on patriotism? I mean, could I argue that? I, I think you can. I mean, the reality is this. I mean, if we can – we can tell you what you can and can't build in certain areas. For example, Georgetown not being able to grow because of the limitations of, of traffic being able to come in and out. What's wrong with us putting limitations on farmlands and who can actually purchase it and who can't purchase it when it comes to foreign entities? So, I mean, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. We're already doing it in some ways to our own people. What's wrong with doing it to foreign entities and, 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 and restricting that somewhat, just like we're restricted in certain areas on what we can and can't build in certain areas, in certain counties, in certain wetlands, et cetera, et cetera. Even if somebody owns it and they're paying taxes on it, they're limited. So what's wrong with it being limited on that? And I do have one other comment to make, and I'm just curious your thoughts. Cause I mean, this Biden stuff that's going on and you know, we talked about treason and we talked about, you know, accepting money from foreign. If he took money from an enemy of the U.S., China, or or what have you, there's no – you can't slice that any other way but treason. 
Totally agree. You're a vice president of the United States of America, and you set up a way to actually funnel money into your pocket based off your position with with a communist party or a communist country. There's no that We've indicted people for treason for a whole lot less that are military that never meant for it to be treason, but it was looked upon as treason. So if he took money from them and put it in his pocket, there's no – sugarcoating that that's absolute treason because we entrust you with the most powerful position in the world except president and if you did it as a vice president that to me that's treason no ifs ands or buts thank you sir well said we'll take a break we'll be back in just a couple of minutes it's that time takes mondays to make friday's trivia thanks to our good friends at pepsi of florence um the correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product. Couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays T-shirts. Uh, I gave Joe Biden more credit than he deserves this morning when I said on his good moments, I think he's supercharged with Celsius and Fast Twitch, both products of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. We're talking farming. You ready? And for, and forget cash receipts. Forget agriculture producing. I mean, there's a, there's a hundred ways to kind of split this atom. But but here's my simple question. You ready? What state in America has more farms than any other state? What state in America has more farms than any other state in America? I'm not talking about cash receipts. I'm not talking about agricultural production. I'm talking about just the, the, the raw number of farms in this state exceed all the others. Do we have a call, Josh? We do. You're on the air. Uh, Colorado. Nope, not Colorado. 843 843- Six six one zero nine three seven. What state has more farms than any other state in America? I believe it was Texas. Texas is right. Twelve percent of all the farms in America are in Texas. I mean, California leads in agricultural production and cash receipts and all that, but Texas has more farms than any other state in America. Who is this, and where are you calling from? Uh, this is Rick, and I'm calling from Hartsville. Thank you, Rick, for listening. Thank you for calling. Josh will get. Uh, back with you, get your information. We'll get you your Pepsi products and your and your Takes Mondays to Make Fridays t-shirts, courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Josh, you'll get with uh, Rick and you'll get all of his all of his information. Got a couple of minutes here. I do want to go back to something we've talked about during the show and really all week. Good way to um uh, just kind of pay our respects to Dave Baker and his family. Rev, I think, got a call last Thursday. And you've heard him talk about his mom's declining health. She's had a lot of birthdays and um, and had some issues health-wise. He got a call, I think, late Thursday, told me that he uh, probably would do the show Friday and then leave and go stay with his mom. Um, I think Rev knew that the end was near, but it still ain't easy, no matter how many birthdays your loved one has had. Um, but Rev texted me yesterday at about 3.15 or 20 and said his mom had passed at 2.45 so uh, let's just keep Rev in our in our thoughts and prayers. Um, he's kind of the straight guy of this dynamic duo. Oh, yeah, I'll call ourselves that. Or just this um this craziness that Josh has become a part of. So I, I just ask our our listeners, uh, all of our friends out there and associates, to keep Rev and his family in our prayers. As um no matter how many birthdays you have, and no matter how much you know that death is inevitable, it's still real. And it's raw and it hurts and you deal with it uh, the best way you know how. Uh, Riff, I think the word he used with me, Josh, was kind of an emptiness. 
you know, something that has always been there, isn't there any longer. I can certainly relate to that, having lost both my parents. So I'm just asking our listeners to keep Reb and his family. And let me uh, keep Dave Baker. I mean, he's not Reb. He's Dave Baker in your uh, in your thoughts and prayers. And um, I, I guess he'll be back sooner than later, but he'll take as much time as he can to take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. At the same time, I want to give Josh a big thumbs up. I uh, hadn't been here very long and um, got kind of kind of thrown to the wolves <laughs> uh, by, by Rev not being here this week. But um, you did a great job, my man. Thank you. You did a sterling job. I appreciate in, uh, that. In throwing your opinion out there. You kind of like that. I, I do. You like being heard. <laughs> I do. It's, it's, um, I, I'll tell you, it's addictive. I mean, it really and truly is. When you realize this microphone empowers you to tell people what you think, you got to be very respectful of that um of that authority and that obligation and that responsibility enjoy your weekend we'll talk monday